0: Old-timey-crimey. I'm Christy. I am Amber. I'm Barb. We've got the light Barbian! Hooray! (laughs) Here, to give us looks askance if it sounds like our research might be just the tiniest bit off. I promise not to shush anybody. I was just going to make a shushing joke. She is, in fact, wearing a cardigan, but uh, as are we all, so. Yes, we we are
1: definitely part of the Cardi gang tonight. <laughs> we are. That that might be what I call my librarians at work. <laughs> okay, I love that. Libarbian <laughs> and the Cardi gang. You are all in the circle of trust now.
0: You're definitely a girl pop group. For sure. Absolutely, 100%. <laughs>
2: Everybody needs, like, horn rim glasses.
0: And a bun. A bun. Don't forget the bond.
2: Oh, and the chain on the glasses, too. Yes,
0: yes, absolutely. Yes. So you can
2: put them around your neck and, and look at them disapprovingly. Yes.
0: All right. Well, this is episode 150. woo <laughs> I can't quite believe it. That's so weird that we've done 150 of these. Well, I've done 150. <laughs> I have not. <laughs>
2: I have done over 100, though.
0: You have, yes. Our first recording of the, the new year was your 100th episode. Although it technically might not have been just because of the fact that, you know, you, you went on vacation for a week or two. But shush. It's, it's shush. shush. Oh, no, we're definitely me. at 100
2: <laughs> by now.
0: Yes, we're definitely at 100 by now. So Who's keeping track?
2: Christy, as apparently. Long as
0: everyone has a nice fine time. <laughs> Happy belated 100th episode, Amber. Whenever that might have been. Yes. <laughs> and just because we have had the changing of hosts and everything, just in case you're new to the podcast and want, you know, get a little confused when you listen to this episode and you're like, oh, I'll go back to episode one. And you're like, who's this dude? Yeah, I'm not there. <laughs> yeah, that was a Scott and me. And Amber came in around episode 44. Uh, yeah, I came in
2: as a guest, and um, I, I've known Christy and Scott for a very, very long time. We're all friends. And they asked me to stay on, and I was like, well, fuck yeah,
0: that was fun. Let's do it again. And I never left. She never left. Uh, Scott did depart around, I think it was around episode 107-ish, I want to say. I could be wrong on that, but that feels, feels right. I I honestly, I don't know
2: the uh, episode numbers. I'm not going to lie to you at all. Uh, But yes, Scott Did Leave, he is doing another podcast now. And um, he is still doing
0: wonderful and hilarious and insane and all the things we love about Scott. Yes, they have not changed one bit. No, 107, actually, I'm going to be referencing in this episode. Uh. That's why I was stuck in your head. (laughs) Yeah, it was uh, somewhere around 122. It's been since then, Amber and myself. With the occasional guest popping by like the Lloyd Barbian. I enjoy the guest appearances, not only because I'm part of that.
1: Yeah. But you know, you
0: guys have some great friends. We do. We really. do. Yes. Everybody's been fantastic. It's been so fun having different people on with us. Beast and Joel and of course our good friend Chris. Yes, yes. So hello to all of you. Hello. <laughs> and also a special hello and thank you to everybody who has rated us on Spotify. Thank you so much. It really does a lot for our show. We're small. We're independent. You know, we still rely on money from Patreon and advertisers in order to help fund this. And so when you rate us on Spotify and, you know, iTunes as well and all that stuff, but Spotify's is, is newer, you help more people see us. And that helps us do all the things that keep this podcast going. So thank you very much to all of you who've rated us. I actually watched the numbers. It's not a huge number, but it was nice. I actually saw it going up this week. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Nice. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> Don't forget to hit that follow button either. Yes, yes. Follow us on Spotify and wherever you do your podcast stuff. Right. review, subscribe. Exactly. So I'm not going to do the Patreon spiel because we, you know, have had enough intro stuff. We'll do it at the end. Just know that it is available. and has a lot of really good shit on it. So we are going to be talking today about the Gouffet case. Gouffet. Gouffet. We always do our sources at the end, but I want to state up front that the vast majority of my research here came from the book Little Demon in the City of Light, a true story of murder in Belle Epoque Paris by Steve Levingston. Excellent book. Highly recommend it. Go grab it and give it a read because there's really good stuff in there. It was over 300 pages, so I couldn't possibly fit everything in that book into this. All right, first we're going to talk a little bit about hypnotism. Hooray! Hooray! This is actually kind of the third in our unintentional slash intentional hypnotism
1: series. I was just listening to another podcast mention hypnotism and mesmerism today. Ah, yes, yes.
0: Yeah, it was definitely quite the, the thing in the late 1800s. Across the world, pretty much. In 1889, there was a conference held in Paris in early August. It was the first International Congress of Experimental and Therapeutic Hypnotism. Which, if you want to make it an acronym, is ficeth. That's (laughs) awful. That's terrible, isn't it? So according to Levingston, France was all about hypnotism. They had put out 37%... Of all literature on hypnosis published over the previous four years. One country over a third of all of the literature about it. That's a lot. So you can tell that it was a big thing. The final event of the conference was a speech put on by Jules Liégeois, professor of law. And this was really what everybody had been waiting for. This was the big event. You had one side the thought that hypnosis was all psychological and that whether you could hypnotize a subject depended on nothing but the power of suggestion. And the other side associated it with neurology also depended on having a very fun medical condition that we love here on the podcast, hysteria. Yeah. Really, just being a
2: woman, you were hysteric.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Yeah. My day...
1: Plays out so much depending on how my uterus is feeling.
2: Yeah, and if you ride a train, your uterus could
1: fall out. Yeah. Wandering womb is something I fear in my life every day.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Yep. Hysterics. Yeah. And so you're easily hypnotizable if you have hysterics. Or a uterus. Or a uterus. <laughs> yes. Well, I know my uterus is fucking hysterical. So... <laughs> <laughs>
1: They, Does it tell
0: jokes? Do you get like <laughs> good knock knock jokes out
1: of that from time to time? Yeah,
0: really good ones. A little bit raunchy. You'd be surprised. The occasional limerick.
2: I feel like my uterus would only speak in limerick.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Amber has the limerick uterus. What the comedy stylings can we expect from your uterus? Bar? Oh, pure yes and improv. <laughs> absolutely. Yes and. <laughs> and you suck. I hate you. Yes and. <laughs> Stop doing this to me every single month. Yes, and that was glorious.
1: Thank you for that. <laughs> yes, and bring me chocolate and cheese sticks. Yes, and
0: that too. Yes, maybe even
1: chocolate covered cheese sticks. Who knows? I'm enjoying a good glass of Pinot Grigio right now. So <laughs> I would totally no hysteria here.
2: <laughs> I would totally dip cheese in chocolate, though. Just for the record. But
1: that's would you dip so. chocolate in cheese? Sure. Why yes. Not? No. Clearly, yeah. that's a better way. <laughs> So this but, is, this is what, fondue in fondue.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm trying to figure out. Would I rather have the pot of chocolate or the pot of cheese? Because the answer is just yes. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Why not both? <laughs> like I'm just going to start dipping hands. Like. <laughs> yeah.
0: So uh, you have this one side that thought hypnotize a subject with just the power of suggestion. That means you can hypnotize pretty much anyone. Okay. No, no hysteria needed. But probably you still had to be a weak minded woman, I'm just assuming. Probably. And then the other side associated it with neurology or uh, hysteria. So, very outmoded psychological condition of the day. The reason that this final talk at the conference was a big deal was because Liègeois belonged to the unconditional hypnosis side. And as a law professor, that extended into his theories of criminality. We've mentioned this a couple of times during our unintentional slash intentional hypnosis series. All right. So
1: his idea was that because people were susceptible to hypnotism, he could apply those to his theories
0: on crime. Yes. That being that you could hypnotize anyone. To do the crimes. To do the crimes. And then forget about it too. Okay. So that inspired a lot of fear. Because it's, there's this idea that, you know, anybody can go around hypnotizing anyone into doing a crime and will never find him or her because the person who actually physically performed the crime was forced to forget it and so can't point the finger at him or her. Which later they get into a little with
1: MKUltra and the idea of what later becomes a Manchurian candidate is that, you know, anybody can be trained to be a sleeper agent and they don't know it. And with a few activating signals can suddenly become this monster of a warrior. So they're really thinking, you know, a good long
0: while before anybody else really started trying to apply those theories. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then there's also the legal aspect of it that if this were the case, the hypnotist was the one who was legally responsible for whatever crime was committed by his command. Because he would have the criminal intent. Yeah, exactly. The other person would, for all intents and purposes, essentially have no free will. Yeah, they'd be the weapon, not the person pulling the trigger.
2: Yeah, they were essentially sleepwalking, had no idea of what they did, no recollection the mm. sleepwalking assaults and, and things like that have come up in
0: the past. Yeah, yeah, we had a whole uh, whole tiny about sleepwalking murders, including the detective who uh, solved the murder, and he was the culprit. Yeah. <laughs> He had sleepwalked and he figured it out. So he was a smart sleepwalker, but not when he was sleepwalking, which is when he killed a dude. So
2: it should be a Patreon so you guys could catch up on that.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, I actually forgot that (laughs) I did a. I actually forgot that this is a regular episode. I didn't mean to go all patron reference. So, uh, anyhow. Great plug, though. Great (laughs) opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I took the opportunity without even realizing it. So there was a lot of fear associated with this, and also the two sides were basically at war. So this is a bunch of intellectuals who believe in hypnosis in a room together. It, all, everybody is furious. There's lots of screaming and shouting. The opposite side had actually planted people throughout the audience to make it seem like they had a bigger crowd so that when they booed, it would come from all over the auditorium. Yeah, it was really, really something. Do you believe in hypnosis? No. No. I don't believe it can do any of these things. I don't believe it can make people commit murder. I I, I believe that maybe some people can be made to do silly things, you know, but nothing against their will or that they would find immoral or distasteful. I think it could
1: lower inhibitions.
0: Yeah. I absolutely
1: think there's no way that you could erase a memory. Yeah, no. You know, you could maybe implant a memory in a very highly suggestible person.
2: Look, guys, but. nobody needs to hypnotize me. Just give me enough rum and convince me it's a good idea. That there is you go. true.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You don't even have to be that compelling. Like,
2: No, you really don't. I'll probably do it on my own anyway. For example, give me rum and then give me uh, firecrackers and cock rings and just
0: watch what happens. I missed that night. I'm sorry I missed that night. But we're going to talk about Toussaint-Augustin Gouffet. <laughs> Because we're just going to leave that there for people's imaginations to deal with. Yep, you guys run wild. (laughs) So it was probably worse in real life. He was a bailiff, which in France at the time was kind of similar to an attorney, not like an officer of the court, but like maybe somewhere between like a paralegal and an attorney could do a lot of the same things that they did. And one of the things that he did was a lot of was debt collection. So debts owed to his clients or debts owed to himself from clients.
1: I recently read an article about somebody using a bailiff in the UK to reclaim their losses against a a big, huge company. I apologize. I do not remember what it was. But basically, they had won a lawsuit against this big company. The big company was dragging their feet on paying it. So they were able to hire bailiffs to come in and start seizing property to recoup what was part of the judgment against them. So they started coming in like they were gonna start taking up computers and desks and staplers. That's my stapler. But the poor finance operating officer had to come in and pay out of his own pocket to keep these bailiffs from taking their shit.
0: Wow. Um
1: and and so just what a lovely every man gets back at the man kind of story. Yeah, that's like so, the,
0: the guy who I think served Wells Fargo with a foreclosure notice or something.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So if you want to stick it to the man, consider
0: being a bailiff. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, uh, thank you for for that. Because Gouffet, he was more willing to stick it to the women. Oh. And uh, by that, I mean, if somebody couldn't pay up, if it was a female client, they might use, as uh, Blanche Devereaux put it, nature's credit card. Oh, my. Yes, yeah, so he uh, was known to be quite the ladies' man Gadabout about when they said, Vous le... Voulez-vous coucher avec moi C'est soi. Thank you. He said oui. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Mais oui, madame. <laughs> Trible. Livingston's book sort of couches it in the mindset of the day, and the people who would soon look into his life had this sort of admiration of his playboy ways. From a modern lens, it's definitely predatory and gross, like, you're in a position of power, you're taking advantage of people. I'm sure in, in the day in France, and this is how Levingston sort of shows you it happening, it seemed more, oh, hee, you know, like, it's, it's not any sort of scandal. It's just, you know, oh, he's going and getting some, good for him, you know, and they don't have to pay their debts, good for them. So, uh, Levingston... Nature's
1: credit card.
0: <laughs> and then the, of course, response to that from Dorothy is, you don't leave home without it.
1: Does Sally May accept it?
2: I was like, well, how many blowjobs is that?
0: <laughs> I don't want to do the math of how many blowjobs is my student loan, thank you. Um,
2: I'm getting locked,
0: jaw just thinking about it. <laughs> oh, my. Okay. So Levingston says, Of all the collectors who might land on the doorstep, Gouffet was the one a woman most wanted to see. His gentle manner and willingness to hear them out endeared him to these women. And their gratitude for a small act of clemency knew no limits. We're definitely couching it in the attitudes of the day, not today. Which is a, it's a good way to look at history. We, I think, can get really judgy of history here sometimes. But, you know, also, we've done 150 episodes. We've yeah. earned it.
2: <laughs> well, I feel, I feel like Faye was uh, reciprocating. And so he was at least making sure the women had a good time as
0: well. I believe you. Yes, I, I think that's probably true. I think he, he definitely was uh, solicitous in that manner.
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't think that he was forceful because he had a, a gentle, gentlemanly way about him. So I, I think he was very, like, kind of almost courting them to be like, if you can't pay, we could do this. I'm just saying. just saying. We don't have to. I'll stay over here. But if you want to invite me in, we can have some wine. I'll play with your boobies. We'll see what happens. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but there is still some coercion there in the effect that, you know, he's in a position of power over them monetarily. You, you can take either side there and sometimes a mixture of both, you know.
2: I'm Yo, if so. Sally Mae showed up at my doorstep and was like, I have this wine. Would you like to talk about settling your
0: debts?
2: <laughs> I'd be like, yeah,
0: you know what? I'm in. Yeah, let's talk about this. <laughs> he was said to be good looking with chestnut brown hair. Uh, was well-dressed and tall for the time. He was around 5'8". The average height of the French male was somewhere around 5'4", five, 5'5", five, five back then. I could only find a record going back to 1918, but this was only 30 years before that, so I figured it, it wouldn't have changed significantly. So 5'4", to 5'5". Five,
1: five. Isn't nutrition wild that in 1918, what, 100 years ago, give or take, that 5'4", mm-hmm. would be fine, and now suddenly... Five, Four places is, skyrocketing. is Yeah, Like, that really just goes to show what medicine and nutrition can do. Well, do you know what the current average American height is? I don't. Can you tell me? Is it 6 foot?
0: You know, you know we like to play the guessing game. 37. Inches? <laughs> I will always guess 37. It's my lucky number. So I'm going to go with 3 foot 7 inches is what you're saying. No. <laughs> <laughs> then what are you saying? 37 inches. Okay, it's sure. It's not an actual 5'11". Guess.
1: 37 is just my standard guess. 5'9".
0: Really? Okay. Yeah, I know. That surprised me too. Wouldn't have guessed. I would think it was a lot higher. Huh. Yeah, same. He also, Gouffet, walked with a slight limp in his right leg that he tried his best to hide. He made a really good living in his career. In 1889, he was 49 years old. And he had in the bank 330,000 francs, which is about $5 million today. Holy moly. Yeah, yeah, he did pretty well. I guess he could afford to uh, give up some income for a little panky-panky with a mademoiselle. Or sometimes a madam. He was a widower with three daughters. They were 16, 18, and 20. Uh, the 16-year-old was actually being educated at a convent, which was pretty common for the day. We're going to see... And the other two were still at home, the 18 and the 20-year-old. The oldest was only 12 when their mother died. So they were 12, 10, and 8. And instead of remarrying, which a lot of men of the time would do, as we've talked about in the past, just to have a woman to take care of the kids, he used the family's hired help to assist with raising the girls. He had a, a governess and also a housekeeper, performed both functions, and a cook. So basically that's how they got by with these, these women helping to raise the girls. So he really didn't need a wife when he could hire for the things
1: at home. It, he, yeah, he did have the... Ex- yeah extort the things that he needed otherwise.
0: He did have the means, certainly, whereas a lot of men would not have the means to have people take care of his children, essentially nannies, and would have to marry a woman or have a female family member come and live. Let's talk about July 26th, 1889. Let's. This was just a few weeks before that uh, conference. The thickest. The thickest. <laughs> had dinner and drinks with friends at a cafe. Dinner was pasta with carrots and green beans, and afterwards he had some absinthe. A little taste of the green fairy. Okay. I don't think that pairs well with green beans, but we'll go with it. Well, they're both green. <laughs> so... But yeah, absinthe is not my deal. So his friends that he had dinner with went to the International Exhibition afterwards. This was a very big deal. A certain tower designed by none other than Gustav Eiffel was built just for the occasion. But Gouffet declined. He had a date that night. Now, the date had actually kind of come about rather surprisingly. He wasn't expecting this when the week began. So she didn't owe him money. (laughs) Yes, there you go, (laughs) yes. It wasn't on his calendar of uh, who am I going to get some from slash when is their collection date. What happened was he had run into an acquaintance that day and found out that the acquaintance and his mistress had split up. And the acquaintance had been kind enough to tell him that the mistress... her eye on Gouffet. She thought he was quite the handsome gentleman. How is this not a red
2: flag? Hey, I broke up
0: with my girlfriend, but she thinks you're cute. Huh? Yeah, it does seem rather like a a warning bell should be going off somewhere, but Gouffet, very soon after that, ran into the mistress herself. And they set up a date for the evening. Oh, shocking. What a coincidence.
2: So circumstantially, Funny. This is just how life works sometimes, you know? That, that is not how life works though. Like, hey, I broke up with my girlfriend. She thinks you're cute. And then one block later, oh, hey, I think you're cute. Want to go
0: out? Gufe was like, yeah, I've had my eye on this girl for a long time, but she's, you know, always seen with my acquaintance. But if, if he's open to it, then no, uh, see what she's open to. And he hitched a cab to her place less than a mile away. Got there about quarter after eight. Let's fast forward to the next morning.
2: Ooh. Oh, we're fast forwarding. Okay. July
0: 27th. I sent you my outline. I know. <laughs> In three separate texts because I kept on hitting enter by accident. <laughs> I'm like, she probably thinks this is the end. This is not the end. There's more. So Gouffet's household was basically his two older daughters, his cook, and the combination housekeeper governess, which was the combination Taco Bell pizza hut of the day. And he would frequently spend nights away because he had his, you know, things. He had debts to collect. He had debts to collect. But he always made sure to be home by morning and to keep everything hush-hush from his daughters. He he kept up a a front with them. And the the cook and the housekeeper, they appreciated that. Doesn't do to let your kids know how slutty you are. (laughs) Exactly. How many debts you collect. So on the morning of July 27th, he didn't come down for breakfast like he always did. How strange. Very strange. The cook freaked out a little bit. And then she goes up to his room and finds his bed hadn't been slept in. So she basically sets up the room to look like he had been there. She messes up the bed. She tosses some soapy water in the sink. You know, just throws some clothes around. That is attention to
2: detail, though. The soapy water in the sink. Yeah.
0: Right? Yeah. Yeah. She's very much making it look like he's been and gone. And then she tells the daughters that he went away on business. Had an early morning. Yeah. The
1: daughters were probably like, okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) They're not checking the sink for suds. I know, right? They're probably like, yeah, sure, business. I'm sure he's giving someone the business.
2: Well, they if they had no idea, they're like, oh, okay, he probably had to go work.
0: Yeah, yeah. Let's go get a cup. So uh, lunchtime rolls around. And he was still a no-show. So the cook goes to his brother-in-law's house, which was very nearby, to see if they had any idea there what was up. His brother-in-law said Gufet's probably at the office. So the brother-in-law now is in charge of this and he goes to the office. And everyone was there, except Gufet. One weird thing comes up when he talks to the building's concierge, who is a woman. Yay, women! Hooray! She'd had her husband stand in for her for a few minutes around 9 p.m. the previous night. And while he did, a man came to Gouffet's office, let himself in with keys, came back down a few minutes later, and that's when the concierge's husband, who didn't really know everybody there, realized it wasn't Gouffet. So the man just said, oh, I work in Gouffet's office. So, and bye. (laughs) It seemed like he was in a little bit of a hurry.
1: Listen, if you take a ladder anywhere, they will let you in. So,
0: yeah, there's just your... saying
1: if anyone needs to sneak into an office late at night, take, take a
0: ladder. Bring a ladder. I love it when we give people uh, tips on criming. Criming tips. Criming tips. Criming tips from old timey crimy. <laughs> so, barb your face.
1: I want this to be a segment so much.
0: <laughs> barb is the reason for the recipes. So, just so you know.
1: Well, now now Barb can be
2: the reason for the criming tips.
0: Yeah, the criming tips. We even have a special, like, music intro for it. So, uh, everything appeared to be intact. There was even 1,400 francs sitting right there that Gufet should have put in the safe before dinner the night prior, but maybe he was a little preoccupied thinking about what awaited him at 8 o'clock. Gotta get that date, man. Yep. Thought you were going to say something different. Uh, His brother-in-law said at the suggestion of suicide that no, this would not have happened. He would never, he loved his daughters. He wouldn't have left them to fend for themselves in this world. And then police found out about Gufet's very, shall we say, active social life. And they figured, well, maybe that's the key. Maybe we'll find the person we're looking for there. And his business partner, who apparently tended to go with him sometimes when he was bill collecting. Oh, my. Yeah, really. I don't know. Uh, some Eiffel Towering going on here, maybe. Oh. <laughs> oh. That, that is a tie-in. <laughs> yes. That is a connection. Yeah. <laughs> so... In two ways. yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> I am very proud of myself right now. And so that friend... As Levington sums it up, you know, he really agreed with this idea and said, Find the woman. His friend, he feared, had fallen victim to a treacherous tart.
1: Oh. Oh, Blame the woman.
2: Of course. No, but I also want treacherous tart on a t-shirt.
1: Absolutely. We're going to have to make that. We're going to have to make that. Because that's lovely. (laughs) Yeah. But let's be honest. I, I, I have no idea where this investigation is about to go. However, I feel if money was sitting on the desk in the office, um, any treacherous tart would have taken it.
0: Yeah. Or the man who came to the office the night before. One would One, think. Exactly. This doesn't add up. So they, the investigation does start with women. They are tracking down Gouffet's most recent lovers. Anyone want to guess, you might know this, Amber, but uh, we'll give Barbara a chance, uh, how many lovers he had had in the month of July, which was not yet over? 37. Oh, damn it. No, it's 20. I should have known when that's what you you're going to guess. I told you, I will always guess 37. You are no fun with the guessing game. You're going to be way off when it gets to, you know, how long the jury deliberated for. Because like, there was not a single jury that went for 37 hours in this time period. Nope. It was more like 37 minutes. Well, she's still going to guess 37 and yeah. she might get it with minutes. <laughs> yeah, she might actually. I hadn't thought about minutes until I said it. And I was like, oh yeah, she might. In a row? <laughs>
2: <laughs> trying not to suck any dick, dick on the way, way the to the parking, parking lot. lot.
0: Levinson's book has uh, the second in command on the case, Inspector Jolm, saying, Don't speak to me of the labors of Hercules. That was just a worn out horse next to Gouffet. So they're saying that Hercules liked to fuck? They're saying that Gouffet is the Hercules of lovemaking. Oh,
2: okay. That
1: is a compliment. Yeah, yeah. But Hercules was. Going through his labors, his trials, yeah, the, yeah the, the trials or labors of Hercules to absolve himself and gain favor, not, not to just exploit women for sex.
0: Okay, well, nobody's accusing Jom of making up the best possible simile.
1: <laughs> Hercules had a sword,
0: Gaffet had a sword. Yeah, there you go, there, now it works. So they questioned all the women and they got... Nothing. Nothing, nowhere, nobody. Not no way, not no how. Not no problem. But a problem because they still don't have a suspect. So then they looked at close associates like his business partner and his brother-in-law. Both of whom were acting a little bit on the shady side. The assistant was still hard at work collecting money due. Mm -hmm. And uh, used Gouffet's personal seal on documents. But nothing came of that immediately. The brother-in-law had taken a bunch of papers from Gufet's office right after Gufet vanished and then destroyed them, which definitely has a suspicious tinge to it. Just a little. Just a little. Just, just if you really sniff, you can smell it. And by smell it, I mean the paper's burning.
1: Not being flushed down the toilet or eaten?
0: <laughs> no, he was uh, not that stupid. And so, when asked about this, he said, "Look, my brother-in-law had a love life that would make Adonis drool. There you go, Inspector Shem. There's your mythology reference you were looking for. Zeus would be a better. Zeus, Zeus liked c- got it. Oh Zeus my God! Zeus to Pound Town. Zeus invented Pound Town. He created it from nothing. <laughs> I'm surprised it's not called Zeus Town." Zeus was just every everything, every everything.
1: I'm inside you.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, sorry for the ASMR from from Amber.
0: <laughs> this is now the, the
1: AMBR. Er-
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is the erotic ASMR channel now. So, the brother-in-law was like, "Look, we are trying to keep some of this hush-hush. He has daughters. He has a public reputation. If people find out." that'll be a problem for the daughters. The sins of the father will reflect upon them. And so, you know, whenever we find him, he's going to thank me for looking out for him. So it gets passed up the chain to the chief of the surete, which is the police office, essentially. This was marie francois Caron. Don't get your hopes up. It's a dude. (laughs) You think with Marie, maybe you might have a shot at a woman, but no, we're not there yet.
2: No, no.
0: Concierge it's about as good as it gets. So, but about him, he had spent time in the French army in Mexico, came back to France and spent some time of uh, the Mexican War. Okay. It's just a weird sentence, yeah. In the 1860s, yeah.
1: Because I commonly think of the 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 French, French army, the French in army in
0: Mexico. Yeah, exactly. That's that's where they always are. Yeah. Uh, so. Levingston said he came back to France afterwards and spent some time as a pharmacist. That didn't go, one might say, super well, according to Levingston, but he had to leave the job when his superiors discovered he was too generous in dispensing opiates to ease his patients' suffering.
1: Oops. Oopsie.
0: That's (laughs) not a modern-day problem at all. (laughs) Not at all. Some of this is just universal, you know, all through time. So then he spent a little time in the wine business, but that wasn't quite right. And then he went to Argentina. It was there that his seven-year-old son died of some illness rather suddenly. He was heartbroken. He came back to France, brought his family back, ended up working for the Surete in Paris and rising through the ranks until he became the chief inspector. There were a lot of interviews with Gouffet's lovers in the beginning, but still we're not getting much traction until a little ways away in Lyon, or a little town just south of Lyon, everybody starts to notice a horrendous stench in the air. It gets worse and worse over the course of a few weeks until finally a comtesse actually fainted when her carriage passed through the area where the smell was coming from. That is some stank.
2: It is some stank indeed. It's
0: quite stanky. So she tells her valet to fig. Well, if we're in France, we're going to go with the valet. <laughs> valet. Oh, yeah. We- So uh, she tells her valet, valet, (laughs) she tells her valet, (laughs) she tells her valet to figure out what's up and he goes to a road worker who says he'll figure it out and then just kind of waits for two days, like real big on procrastination apparently, and also really didn't want to go into the smelly place where the smelly thing was and find out what smelled. So uh, what he finds is a burlap sack. He immediately realizes this is not just a dead deer or a bunch of dead fish. So he runs to the police. They come, they open it up, and they find a corpse tucked into the fetal position and tied up. It's been a hot summer. Decomposition has set in pretty well.
1: There are going to be fluids.
0: There yeah. There are going to
1: be bugs.
0: They say the beard just crumbled at the touch. Ooh. Yeah. It's pretty bad. It's pretty nasty. And so the medical examiner, I guess he sort of does his best. Meh. I suppose, kind of. He's very young and very green, and the real medical examiner who should have been in charge of this, who we'll talk about later, he was on vacation. So of all the times. He sets the time of death between July 9th and July 23rd, and guesses that the cause of death is strangulation. Remember Gouffet disappeared on the night of uh, July 26th, or early morning of the 27th. So that sets the date outside. Uh, The body was found to be 5'7", which is different from Gouffet's actual height. But only by an inch or so. Only by an inch or so, and actually that did tie in because his family had given his height as 5'7". Yeah,
1: and you don't know. They might be, you know, he might have been in heels at the time, (laughs) or they might have rolled up. Because he seems like the kind of guy who
0: would over-accentuate his height. Maybe, yeah. Well, I mean, he doesn't need to. Everybody else is three inches shorter than him. Fair. (laughs) So, or four. And he has black hair, whereas Gufet's was chestnut. Was aged somewhere between the mid-30s and the mid-40s. Gufet was 49, so also falls out of that range. So this is everything that that medical examiner got. They still can't identify the body, and more things are found in the area in the coming days. There's a bunch of pieces of wood scattered around that they figure out were a trunk at one point before they were smashed. And a key on the ground that just happens to fit perfectly into the lock on one of the wood scraps from the trunk. So presumably, sorry
1: if I'm jumping ahead, huh. uh, he might have been put in the sack and then put in a trunk and perhaps shoved at some velocity. Pretty much. That's causing the, the trunk to
0: explode, and, and there he go. That's pretty much the assumption at this point, yes. So, but they don't know what size the trunk was, so they don't know if it's definitely associated with this, because if it was a smaller trunk, he wouldn't be able to fit into it. So, so maybe they, it's just two things that fell off of the cart. Yeah, just just but happened to.
1: Trunks just don't randomly explode.
0: And also the wood smells horrifying. Uh, to the extent that one of the people who found it he was actually planned to use it as firewood initially. And then it was like, nope, smells too bad, smells nope. too bad. Not burning it. Not in my house. Oh, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So they have some craftsmen put the trunk back together to figure out whether the corpse could have actually fit in it. That's actually pretty advanced from a forensic standpoint. It really is. We're going to see some really interesting things forensics-wise here. Even a couple of forensic luminaries just popping up. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. So... The trunk turned out to be three feet high, two feet wide, and two feet high. One of the craftsmen decided to be the guinea pig and actually crawled into the decomposition stinking wood oh. trunk. And he got in, he curled up, and they closed the lid. And he fit. I'd like to give everyone a
1: new word of the day, which is anosmia, which is a lack of smell. Oh, yeah, there you go. Perhaps he was experiencing
0: anosmia. He was an an anosmiatic? He was an anosmian? I don't know. We'll go with that. He was an anomaly. An anosmiac? (laughs) Maybe he just had COVID, couldn't smell. Maybe. So back in Paris, Chief Goron reads about the body and the trunk in the papers. It seems kind of like a long shot. The details don't quite match up in most respects. And it's also 500 kilometers away. That's 310 miles from where Gouffet was last seen. He tries to get some traction with Lyon to at least be able to rule Gouffet out. But they are, there's just so much competition between the departments, especially like Lyon feels like, oh, big city policemen come in here to tell us how to do our job. And so it's it's a lot of back and forth and infighting. And they, to the extent that they are willing to defy logic because they had found on the trunk a luggage tag that indicated it had been transported via train from Paris to Lyon on July 27th, 1880. But you couldn't see the last digit. The uh, Of course, Caron said, that's got to be 1889, this year. That was the very day after Gouffet disappeared. And the Lyon officials were like, nope, nope, it's 1888. Somebody uh, brought that trunk to Lyon a year ago, and then waited uh, almost a year, and then committed the murder. Strange. There's also, of course, the black hair, the age difference uh, between Gouffet and the corpse. And finally, after a lot of back and forth, they let Goron send Gouffet's brother-in-law out to look at the remains. And it's even worse than your expression <laughs> indicates, Barb. That's not an ideal task. It's not. that has been out there for a while. It's pretty nasty, and they also take him to see the body at night with a single lantern lighting it. And at
2: this point, the body was described as bloated and greenish. Hmm.
1: I don't know if I would even recognize any of you lovely folks, who I've known quite some time, if it was in the dark and a very long time since you had passed and you'd been in a burlap
0: sack. Why are you thinking about our death so much, Barb? I mean, it's what I do. <laughs> 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 That's Just,
1: why I'm on this show, guys. Come on. She's not a life brilliant. I'm on
0: fucking fire tonight. <laughs> not literally, though. <laughs> no. My... They took my lighter and made me leave it in the kitchen. Yeah, much to Amber's dismay. She's like, this is a good podcast, but I really think if you were physically immolating yourself, it would be a great podcast. I mean, like, maybe not you, but
2: definitely somebody. Somebody.
0: Should... I'm sure we can find somebody you would want to set on fire. Uh... I have a... No, <laughs> no, no. No, no. Don't say it. Don't say <laughs> it. Don't say it. <laughs> just, just let that sentence never end on, on the air. Uh, so... Basically, because the hair looks black, the brother-in-law says, no, this is not Gouffet. Meanwhile, they're looking into Gouffet's business partner, kind of sketchy guy, but as hard as they try, they can't get anything on him. Then he mentions that Gouffet isn't the only person to have disappeared from Paris in late July. Well, how would you know that, my friend? because he knew a mutual acquaintance of theirs named Michel Ayrault. And Michel met the description of the man who'd gone to Gouffet's offices the night of the disappearance. And Michel Ayrault's wife said he enjoyed keeping mistresses and did tend to pull some all-nighters away from home. His latest mistress was a 21-year-old named Gabrielle. Ayrault is 46 at this point. He had been born in the south of France, the eldest of two boys born to a fabric salesman who would later open a winery. That seemed to do pretty decently well. He had a really good education, but there's one thing that happens and we don't know what it is. But when he was 16, he did something so bad that his father asked the police to lock him up for two years.
1: I imagine since this is France, it might involve cheese. (laughs)
0: fucked a cheese wheel.
1: (laughs) You took it there. You took it to that place. I was thinking perhaps a forgery of cheese or perhaps... um, He was a fromage forger. (laughs) I mean, that's a thing. You know, if you say it's Parmesan, it needs to be from a specific area. Yes, yes. I I feel like it, it probably had to do with some
2: sort of crime against a family member or a farm animal.
0: Yeah, something that he didn't want the public to know about and so didn't want to have an actual trial, but was just like, if I tell the police, they'll just lock him up for two years. And well, apparently they did.
2: It's kind of similar to to what we were talking about before okay. with um, you don't want to tell the sins of a family member because then it reflects on the rest of the family. That was very much believed. Mm-hmm. So anything that he did, he wouldn't want to get out into the public, whether he... Fondled a cousin or raped a goat or whatever it might
0: have been You took it then (laughs) Of course she did We expect it from Amber Yeah, but like
2: (laughs) you don't want to put that out there But the, the dad was like, he needs to go now Like he just, he needs to be gone and think about what he
0: did And maybe give him a Bible Yeah, that essentially seems to be what happened And he did a good job of keeping it under wraps Because we still don't know what it was and I just solved that part. <laughs> there you go. Uh,
1: Listeners, please feel free to weigh in. Cheese or goat? Tell us what you think. Yes. Goat cheese.
0: <laughs> A little bit of one, little bit of the
1: other. Calm A, calm B.
0: Exactly. So, uh, Levingston says that his mother favored the younger brother and not Ero, Michelle. But he also quotes her as saying, oh, this one here had a well-organized head. He makes a lot of money. He is much more skilled than his brother. I kind of think that there was some favoritism towards Michelle.
2: <laughs> it's hard to say, though, because if you would ask our mom, like a newspaper would ask our mothers to tell us about us, they would be a lot more
0: uh, giving. Well, I don't think it was to a newspaper because oh, okay, yeah, so, well, she died before the events that we talk about. Oh, okay. Later on. But if
2: somebody was interviewing them, I feel like that the mother would be much more kind.
0: Oh, certainly. In description. Especially when the sins of the son reflect on the family. (laughs) They're great. I love them so much. Such a charmer, that one. He's so smart and he's much more skilled than his brother. Interestingly, Erol was also in the French Army stationed in Mexico in the 1860s. But... Unlike Garand, uh Aero deserted because his commanding officer wouldn't let him go on a date with a local girl. So then he ended up in South America for a bit. After a little while, the French government said, okay, all of you deserters, we'll give you amnesty. You can come back now, I suppose. And so he did. He went back to France. He got married, had a daughter, and then swiped his wife's dowry and headed to Argentina to run some scams. 40,000 franc dowry. Wow. He would go back and forth between South America and France for the next few decades. It's just so weird because the Mexico and South America thing are so oddly paralleled to Chief Garón's life. You have to wonder if they were in Mexico at the same time. And we don't, I don't have exact dates, but it does seem entirely likely. Although not for long since Aero got the hell out of there since you, oh, you won't let me go on a date? I'm not even allowed to have a social life in the army? God not like this is a war or anything. Yeah, yeah, right? His brother, the younger one, Jean Baptiste, got the family vineyard in the early 1880s when their father passed. That caused some issues, especially when the vineyard was at risk of disaster because there was this infestation of a vine-eating pest. It was overtaking a huge portion of France's grape crop. And this was really affecting the wine harvest, the grape harvest, which they turn to wine. They don't just harvest the bottles off the trees. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, I'm planting one tomorrow. (laughs) Yes. Fun fact. The pest was brought over the Atlantic, likely from North America. After years of struggle, they finally fell upon the idea of bringing American vines over, ones that had proven resistant to the pest. And grafting them onto French rootstock. And that helped the grape crop survive. Specifically, it seems like Texas vines were good candidates. So when we drink a French wine, we're also kind of drinking a Texan wine. America. (laughs) America. Fuck yeah. (laughs) So Jean-Baptiste turned to Michelle. And Michelle's idea was, let's go ask Mommy. We'll go and we'll get the money from her even though she'd already made loans to the vineyard to try to help this whole issue. She seemed to be very sickly and bedridden, so when they got there, Jean-Baptiste, he backed right off. He was like, mm, this doesn't feel right. It feels like we're taking advantage of her condition, but not Michel. No. First he begged. Then he demanded. Then he yelled. Then he cursed. And then he pulled a gun on his own invalid widowed, elderly mother. And I wonder why he wasn't the favorite. Right? (laughs) After this, he certainly
1: is. I mean, if you're not bullying a sick woman over grapes, it was grapes, right?
0: Yeah, well, money Um, money for the grapes.
1: Money for the grapes. Then are you really passionate about what you do?
0: I think not. I don't think you're invested enough. (laughs) Amazingly, she may be sickly, but she's a tough broad. That didn't sway her. She said, yeah, go ahead. Shoot your mother. Okay, right. You're going to do that. And so finally he took another tack. He threatened to rip up a photograph of his father. It was one of the only ones they had. That actually is what got her. But <laughs> to shoot him? Because I would have. <laughs> right? <laughs> Instead of shooting him, she gave them the money, but she said she would only give it to Jean Baptiste. Once they were out of mommy's hearing, Michel, of course, told his little brother that since, you know, he, Michel, had the acumen and the knowledge to take care of such a large sum, it was 15,000 francs, he should take it and he would go and and deal with getting it. You know, it was a bunch of titles that she gave them to, to land and property and such that they were going to take and sell and all that. Or use as collateral for a loan. Uh, so he got all of that and then he dipped. He was gone. He's out. Exactly. He just
2: wanted money to go back to the Latina girls.
0: <laughs> well, he, he did uh, come back to Paris in the late 1880s and was working at a trading company there. That's where he met someone we're going to talk about, that mistress we mentioned, Gabrielle. Gabrielle. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Bonjour, Gabrielle. Bonjour, Gabrielle. I love the way French women, when they talk, they get that lilt. <sighs> You walk into a store and bonjour. (laughs) Uh, Anyhow, so she was born in 1868 in Lille, France. Her father and mother had five children, but only Gabrielle and her little brother survived childhood. Gabrielle was sent to a convent for education at a very young age, like I mentioned. Convents kind of feature in young women's education. And she was five years old. When her mother died of lung disease. And so she was able to come home and say goodbye to her mother. But after that, her father was just too busy with business. So he shipped her off to her maternal uncle in Belgium. Sounds far away, but that was only forty kilometers or twenty-five miles from where they I mean they were right by the border, each town was. So it did work out. The uncle was very much a father figure to her. He raised her for eight years. She got well-educated there, and then she ended up back at the family home at the beginning of her teen years. What a wonderful time to go back to your father that you're pretty sure doesn't love you. uh, That's
2: kind of the gist of it, yeah.
0: Yeah, and also finding out that your dad's been shacking up with the family governess. Which, you know, why do they have a governess if they have two children? If the kid isn't there. Well, she has a brother. The brother gets to stay home and be educated by a governess. She does not. Exactly. I call her the govern mistress. Some people who were probably having some sex and maybe incorporating food into it were uh, her father and the governess. And so, Chocolate sauce. Chocolat. <laughs> Chocolat. <laughs> Chocolat. So obviously, Gabrielle gets a little upset at this. And the governess told Gabrielle's father, I think it's time for your daughter to go again. And uh, her father was like, yeah, I agree. Sent her back to another convent. Yeah, he also told her not to come home. There was also that. So the mistress literally insisted that Gabrielle be banished from her own family home.
2: Wow. Yeah. I mean, is it really her family home, though? Her mother died when she was five. She was already shipped off before that. Yeah. And then she was shipped off for eight years and comes back just to be shipped off again.
0: Probably her only memories are her mother's death there. Yeah. Because she was possibly sent off to the convent before she could even really remember things.
2: Yeah, and she probably doesn't know her brother at all, so her brother is essentially a stranger.
0: Yeah, yeah. It is really sad. It's It's a sad
2: upbringing. Why not give her back to the uncle that actually cared about her?
0: I know, right? I I think there was something that the uncle couldn't care for her anymore, I don't know specifically. But yeah, it it wasn't fair one way or the other. And uh, it doesn't go well for her. Uh, She had a few interesting behaviors at the convent. So some of her interesting behaviors. One was that she was either eating her feelings, which she understandably had a lot of, and or puberty was hitting her very hard, which it can do. Hormones doing their thing and she gained quite a bit of weight. The other behavior, possibly born out of puberty too, but also possibly her shitty home life, was to raise as much hell at the convent as possible, which as you can imagine, they looked down on that. Hysteria! 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 You should know that we now have, like, a finger motion that goes with this. We, like, take the index finger and point it in the air. His but I actually up.
1: twist, too. Though.
0: Oh, yeah, it's a little twist, little twist. Got to get... yeah,
1: that's my... Violent jerking motion of <laughs> some sort, at least. You have to
2: have some sort
0: of, yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, Stimuli. So, uh, she did everything there from using naughty words to accusing a vicar of touching her. Which... Could have happened. Exactly. They didn't believe it back then, but we, with our uh, frame of, of the modern age, were like, yeah, there's a decent chance she was actually correct about that.
2: I, I went to Catholic <laughs> school. There's a decent chance that she was not uh, not fibbing.
0: Yeah. So she got kicked out on her derriere real quick and thus began a succession of short stays at various homes and institutions meant to educate her as her dad and the governess. mistress Tried to keep her away from their home and she just kept being sent back. Almost like she's doing this on purpose. You think? And I don't blame her. And at every single placement she ended up in, she was left alone. Her dad never even visited her, even when she was close. Wow. Mm hmm. Fuck that guy. Exactly. Finally, at age 15, she ends up at a convent that's basically like a home for wayward girls and is run very much like a prison. She did learn a lot there, but maybe not the things a 15-year-old girl would learn at school in an ideal world. So how to make a knife out of a toothbrush? Probably that and some sex stuff, yeah. So she was said to be very intelligent, but also had a mean streak and was pretty unpredictable. She kept you on your toes. You never knew what she was going to be like from one moment to the next. And one of the, the sisters at this home said she had a grand tendency to peculiar friendships. At 18, finally she's sent home for good. She drops some weight and starts gallivanting around town a little bit. Yeah! <laughs> Is that how you'd say it Frenchly? Uh, yeah. Yeah! <laughs> I love it. And uh, so she starts up something with a man who considered himself an amateur hypnotist. I just took this straight from Livingston because it's beautifully written and ends with a real kick to the nuts. Her father objected to her sassiness at home and her saucy displays on the street. Complaining that she brought public shame to him. Later, he disingenuously told the press that it was trying for him to have a daughter like her. He had made so many sacrifices for her and paid for so much of her education. He finished the interview by saying <sighs> If one knew when they came into the world that children would turn out this way, one would break their neck. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to present Daddy Issues? Monsieur, yeah, Monsieur Bompard, Father, Father of, of the, the Year! year. Yay!
1: Boo! Jeez. I'm going to ignore you all of your life and kick you around instead of actually, like, caring one bit.
2: And then I'm going to tell a newspaper that had I known you'd be like this, I would have snapped your neck as
0: an infant. Exactly, yes. It'd be the humane thing to do. Gabrielle got out of that house mainly to escape the threat of yet another stint at a wayward girl's home. Or a broken neck. Yeah, or that. Although it was the govern mistress telling her that, you know, this was the next step. You keep acting this way and, you know, being saucy on the street. Ooh. Bet she was saucy in the sheets, too. Basically, the govern mistress said. I'm going to girls. insist
2: you get locked up again because I can't stand looking at you.
0: Pretty much, yeah. Probably looked like her mother. That's probably it. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. And so basically, the govern mistress helped Gabrielle flee to Paris alone Mm -hmm. at age 20, Mm -hmm. and this was a time when seeing a young woman unaccompanied by anyone on the train was not a norm at all, even at age 20, so it was kind of strange. It was July 1888 when she fled Lille to Paris. After just a few days, her purse was empty, the governed mistress had not given her a lot to go on. She was trying to find a job, She ended up at the trading company where Michelle Ayrault worked. He tried to bilk her right from the start. He told her she needed to put down a 5,000-franc deposit in order to get this job. And, of course, she can't scrape up that kind of cash. She barely has, you know, one franc. She doesn't have a sou to her name. And uh, she, of course, says, no, I can't do that. He said, well, I can't hire you, but uh, how about dinner? Nature's credit card. Nature's Nature's credit card. So, Ero took her as a mistress as he was married, had been for 19 years, and had that daughter. (laughs) And he really pampered the crap out of her, especially in the beginning. According to Levingston, she got hats and high fashion, a new coiffure, manicures, fine liqueurs. He paid her rent and took her to cafes and restaurants. She enthralled him gave him the flesh he craved, and he proudly showed her off on the boulevards.
2: So she <laughs> was a babe, and uh, he got to show her off and spoil her. So he was a sugar daddy.
0: Yeah, he really was a sugar daddy. And uh, she wrote to her hypnotist lover back in Lille sometime early in their relationship that she was grateful for what Aro had done for her when she was down and out, but she could never really see herself loving him. She said... Poor man, he lives on illusions. Which is interesting. So, And speaking of illusions, they would go to hypnotist parties of a sort. Everyone there found Gabrielle to be a remarkably easy subject. You could hypnotize her basically just by snapping your fingers or saying the word hypnotize. And boom, she's in a trance. This went on for a little while until the big shot lady, who actually facilitated these gatherings, heard something, we don't know what, unsavory about Gabrielle and then she was no longer invited. Ooh, cancelled. Oh uh, yeah, She got cancelled. She got cancelled. All the papers will say is that it was due to, quote, the spiciness of this young person. Women were supposed to be delicate, dainty, and mild, and not at all have personalities. You're not supposed to be spicy or saucy or sassy. And you know what? I'm really glad that we are all spicy, saucy, and sassy. Need to. There's another t shirt. <laughs> Treacherous tart. Treacherous tart. Spicy, saucy, sassy.
2: We love the alliteration.
0: Yes. So uh, things kind of went downhill as far as April's <clears throat> personal life was concerned. He was fired after theft and embezzlement accusations by his employer.
1: Oh no, really?
0: And then proceeded anytime he mentioned the guy, his employer, to get mildly anti-semitic so he just called him the jew freiberg wow i guess it's not even mildly it's 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 That's pretty outright. out there yeah it's pretty
1: outright anti-semitic yeah it's, it's
0: pretty pretty bad but this was france <laughs> at what time uh 1889 hmm speaking of france at this time uh Everyone was really on board with this one particular concept that was embodied within a common saying of the day. Get ready to get pissed off. It's going to be some Nazi shit, isn't it? No, no. Women are like cutlets. The more you beat them, the tenderer they are. Nope, don't like that. But Aro was like, uh, I uh, like your theories and I would uh, like to subscribe to your magazine.
2: He liked that. Oh, and I wonder why the wife was not at all upset that he was carrying on with other women.
0: She was like, no, go beat her. I'm fine with that as long as you're not beating me.
2: He often didn't come back, and that's totally okay. That is fine. Oh, he ran off months ago.
0: Why didn't you report him missing? I don't want him back. He can stay away. That's okay. And she actually was very much like the wife was, you know, disbelieving that he could ever do anything wrong aside from having lovers. Gabrielle did try to get away. But Aero tracked her down. When he got her home, he tried to strangle her. Warning, warning. Red flag, red flag. Yes, leaving marks on her neck that would stick around for days. Wow. Now, Aero later said that uh, he never successfully hypnotized her. She disagreed with that. She said he could basically just snap his fingers and into a trance she went. Uh, A quote from her, he could do what he wanted with me. He could make me do anything in an instant. So on July 25th, the night before Gouffet's disappearance, Ayrault was known to have had coffee with Gouffet. And they did indeed, these two lovers, Ayrault and Gabrielle, leave Paris around that same time and made a little stop right around Lyon before continuing on. In their travels, after Lyon, they go to Marseille, where Jean-Baptiste lives, Michel Averill's brother. This is the first time the brothers have seen each other since Michel ran off with all the <laughs> <and> borrowed money <laughs> years ago. And of course, Michel's not bringing back the money, but rather bringing his mistress and insisting on staying with his brother. So, uh, you know, sorry I don't have your money, but how about some hospitality, dude? Yeah, break out the good... Good wines. Yes, yes, the good china, the good everything, and I will take it all with me. The good goat cheese. Yes, the good goat cheese. (laughs) I'm going to have me some fun tonight. He only stays for a few weeks, and then he steals 300 francs, which is $4,000 today, from Jean-Baptiste, and he and Gabrielle head back to Paris, and then he and Gabrielle set off for England, Gabrielle having cut her hair and bought some boys' clothes to pass as his daughter. She was actually only four eight, so she could pretty easily pull this off. She was quite tiny. Yeah, she she was an itty bitty
1: little thing. But since they weren't married, they needed to find a reason for him to be taking her overseas,
0: and that's why she was
1: dressing as exactly, especially
0: since he was older, much older, much much more acceptable for him to be taking his daughter than you know somebody who's not his wife, and looks quite a bit younger than him. From England, they're off to Quebec. And for that trip, she becomes his daughter, Bertha. And they steal a name. The name they happen to steal was the name of her uncle that took her in. And that is now his name. So. Aww.
1: So I, I say kind of this creepy. being named Barb. Uh, if my choice is between Gabrielle and
0: Bertha. <laughs> yeah, I'll take Gabrielle any day of the week. I'd
1: probably try to find something
0: different. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's kind of a step down.
0: It's a yeah. little bit, sorry to all the Berthas who are our audience. We're going to find out that our audience is exclusively Berthas. Oh, I'll love <laughs> everybody
1: born Bertha, but I don't, uh, uh, again, as somebody named Barb, the, the name you want, is not always the name you choose.
0: And to all the Berthas out there, we're very sorry that your parents didn't love you. So <laughs> again, named Barb.
2: But you know what? Their parents probably love them more than Gabrielle's dad loved
0: her. You're Fair. not you're not wrong. You're you're very correct, actually. So they are in Quebec. She's masquerading as his daughter now. And in Quebec they meet a French aristocrat and sort of traveling Playboy adventurer type, who's also kind of like Venture capitalist of the day, uh, his name is Georges Garange. He's forty-nine, and Ero uses a fake identity, the you know uncle's identity, and a totally bogus story about a cognac distillery that he was going to start in California, and he gets Garange to invest in it, three hundred thousand francs. That's about four point six million dollars today. Jesus.
2: Yeah. I'm just trying to imagine, like, being on a cruise and convincing somebody to give you four million dollars.
1: Right. For any reason, really.
2: Yeah.
1: Like, you can trust me. It's fine. It's impressive. You don't even need me to prove this is my actual name. It's fine.
2: Or that this is what I'm doing. This is,
1: you,
0: you don't, this is my real daughter. Not at all my mistress. It's fine. We're definitely not banging. so Airo thought that he had Gabrielle totally under his control. She'd actually gotten really sick of his shit. And also here was this handsome, actually rich dude who seemed to like her too. So her loyalty started to shift a little bit uh, from one man to the other. And then something happens, we're putting that in air quotes, that just coincidentally sets up the bowling pins for Airo to try to knock down. Oh my, Gabrielle's incredibly wealthy aunt in France kicked the bucket. So she has to go back. But of course, her dad, Ero, is too busy with all this distillery stuff in San Francisco. Oh, yeah, they had gone from Quebec to San Francisco and then Garange followed them there. So, you know, May, hey, Garange. Garange? Eh? Maybe I'm saying it wrong. Let's go with Garange. There's an ER at the end of it though. Well, but there's no accent. Okay, so I'm going to go with Garage. Garage, maybe you could escort my daughter back to France. And on your way, you can stop in your bank in and Canada. And give us more money. And give, yeah, he basically, he, he hadn't given him the full loan yet. He just agreed to it. So this is to get him to his bank so that they can get the money. And then while you're in France, you can hit up my brother in law. He's good for the money. You're good to go there. Even before they leave, Uh, he manages to snag a $200 loan from Garange at the station, and that's uh, $6,000 today. So, Gabrielle and Garange, uh, they get on the train. Garange actually doesn't know anything about the Gouffet murders due to his recent travels. Gabrielle holds some stuff back, but she does confess on the train that Eros' fake persona was just that. She says we were living a lie, this is all a scam. Well, she doesn't quite tell him that it's all a scam. <laughs> and he doesn't quite believe it and understand it either. He said, I don't know how he got so much money. He's not that bright. So they were supposed to make stops in Canada and New York City. Canada, he was gonna get the money. In New York City, they were gonna make another stop and that's where a would be to knock him off and take the money, free and clear. You know, except for the murder part. They skipped those. Because she's like, everyone's just basically going to kill you for your money.
1: And also, I like you, and I don't want you to be killed. Exactly, yes. And you have a lot more money that perhaps you may favor upon
0: me. Yes, and actually they also, they they hook up, and they have some train sex. As you do. And then they have some boat sex. As you do. And then they have more train sex en route to Paris. As you do. Exactly. Brown chicken, brown cow. (laughs) Oh, and... Grunge, I'm going to go with Gouranger, actually. It's bugging me now. Gouranger shares the same fun little hobby of seemingly every man in the Western world at this point. He's an amateur hypnotist.
2: Good Lord.
0: Everybody's a freaking amateur hypnotist. You know, like, it's the everybody was kung fu fighting of the day. Everybody was amateur hypnotizing. Their snaps were fast as lightning. There we go. <laughs> I wasn't sure I would be able to pull it off, but I, I I grabbed it out of thin air. And so he did try that out on her. Let's see how well you 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 are hypnotized. She goes under fairly easily. She's quiet for a little bit until she yells, "Murderer! Murderer!" But she was a drama queen, especially when she was hypnotized. Somehow, so he didn't think much of it. This guy is. Just a he little just, bit too dull. He just wants to enjoy his money and his hypnotism, and his and, banging, and just let it go, let it go. Various forms of transportation. I will bang on a boat. I will bang on a goat. I oh. will bang on a plane. I will bang on a train. <laughs> okay. So,
1: <And laughs> Amber sits judging us silently. Yeah, she's
0: she's got her judgy face on. You're not schooling your face. I'm yeah. not
2: schooling my face. Nobody expects you to here.
0: We expect you to look at us judgingly.
2: I don't know if I want the Dr. Seuss sex book to be better or worse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, like, I'm trying to decide which way I want the needle to point. I'm like, that was pretty mild. I could make it so much worse, but I probably shouldn't because it's Dr. Seuss style. I had banging
0: on a goat. <clears throat> what more do you want? Meanwhile, Ero arrives in New York. This is supposed to be his big moment. He's going to kill the guy, get his money. And he's been double-crossed, and it takes him a little while, but he realizes it, and he's pissed. He writes one letter to her, one to him. He can't send either of them. Where is he going to send them? <laughs> exactly, he can't. He just writes them. So the I've one... rage
1: written letters, and so then you just delete them from your inbox, and you feel better. That is actually
0: a therapy tactic. Yeah. So here we do have some bits from the letters he wrote them. The one to her says, What misfortune could have come to you? I no longer sleep nor eat. Are you sick? Are you dead? Have you disappeared? Monsieur Granger, has he mistreated you? I must know. Ah, Bertha, don't let me die of despair. You do much evil to your benefactor. If you return, I will pardon you. Oh hell no. Yeah, Amber just basically did a like a a physical bitch I say.
2: Bitch I say? (laughs) If you, won't, if you come back to me, I won't beat you to death.
0: Yeah, I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you and not beat you to death. Maybe to, like, close to it. Just trying to do a little bit, you know, fun stuff. So this abusive, broke-ass motherfucker
1: uh, is not at all comparable to the wealthy guy with whom she has shared the reality of what's going on.
0: Some of the reality. Gasp, I say. Yeah, gasp. The one to uh, Garanger reads, You do not have the right to keep this woman. She is mine. I gave her my fortune and my honor. She does not have the right to be happy while I suffer. Return, Bertha, and I will pardon her. It's all about the pardoning. She does not
1: have the right to be happy while I suffer. Bitch, I
0: say! (laughs) Amber was ready with it. She was about to bump... (laughs) bust out and say it while I was even reading the letter. She could barely hold that back. Cause it,
2: Well, as soon as you, she does not have the right to be happy while I'm not, fuck
0: you, man. And there's also all this ownership in there. She is mine. You don't have the right to keep her. She has no agency or free will in his eyes. Yeah, they're treating her like a suitcase. Yes, that, that's my suitcase.
2: And I'm gonna get it back and throw it down the stairs. Because because I should be happy
0: because I didn't strangle her. Yeah, exactly. So he writes these letters to no one and nowhere. Meanwhile, Garon is on the trail, our our wonderful surete chief back in Paris. Uh, But he finds that once they left Paris, it's really hard to sniff them out. So he goes back to the drawing board with the trunk. He finds, after some digging, that there is a record of a trunk. Registered on the 11.45 a.m. train on July 27th from Paris to Lyon. It weighed 230 pounds. We don't know exactly how much Gouffé weighed. Or do you? I think I
2: have that, actually. Because I have that the trunk was the combined weight of a fully grown man and a stout wooden trunk. You continue talking. I okay. will look
0: for it. I'm pretty sure I had it somewhere. So now Garon is like, all right, I still don't believe that everything went correctly in Lyon when I sent the brother-in-law, so I'm going to go myself. And he wants to set up his own autopsy. I want to redo what you did because you did it badly. He gets there and he finds out that they can't find the damn body because they put it in the communal graveyard unmarked. Don't you have charts for that? No, no. They seriously just toss these coffins in a mass grave. Fuck. So, that's what he said. Then he goes to the medical examiner. Merde! Merde! Who had done the post-mortem, who, uh, while he wasn't great at his job, he had at least clipped a few locks of hair from the corpse and kept them. Grand takes a look at them, starts to think a little bit, and then asks for some distilled water. He soaks the hairs a few times in the water and then pulls the formerly black hair out. It is brown. So
1: it was just icker and other gross putrefaction. Blood,
0: dirt, icker, putrefaction.
2: 176 pounds.
1: 176
2: pounds. That is a heavy trunk. My lord. Well, th- no, that was just the man.
0: No, I mean, what I'm saying is if he was 176 pounds, the trunk was 230, then that trunk alone was 54 pounds.
2: So They don't make them like they used to. They really don't. I, I actually had, and I, I don't know, I don't have a calculator for this. I had that the trunk and weighed in as 105 kilograms. Okay. That was what it was registered as. I don't know what that is in pounds, if,
0: if you want to look that up. That would probably be 230 pounds. It might have even said kilograms in the book, and I just converted it into pounds for, you know. 231 pounds. There you go. That's so...
2: It, say say he was 176, so that would be, what, like a 55-pound a trunk. I actually have a big steamer trunk at my house. Okay. That came over from England when Marcus's grandmother emigrated here. And it has all the original stickers and everything. Oh, my. That's amazing. And I will tell you that that trunk is probably a good 50 pounds or more. So, I would believe it. Like, those big trunks are heavy and
0: sturdy so that you could carry them overseas. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. My goodness. So, we now know the hair is actually brown. Could be anybody's hair, though. So, Garon has Gouffet's family send him one of Gouffet's hairbrushes. And as far as they can tell in their early, very early forensic methods of compare them side by side. (laughs) Yup, that looks like it. (laughs) Yep. One of these things is exactly like the other. What do you know? Then the conundrum of the hopeless exhumation of the body gets a lot less hopeless. And this is my favorite part. The medical examiner's apprentice pulled Inspector Garon aside. He said he'd had a hunch that they might need the body again. So he'd left a mark on the coffin. And just in case anybody had any doubts, he also tossed his hat in. Literally put one of his old hats in the coffin.
2: His name is Julian Kalmal. This was before Sharpie, where you could just write your name on things. Yeah, he (laughs) he scratched his own initials into the coffin and then put an old hat on the head, just to be sure. Yep.
0: This wonderful apprentice, Julian, he received some of the money, from the reward fund that Gouffé's family oh, good had set for up, him. he got five hundred francs. It's about seventy-six hundred dollars today. And he also got some some plaudits from uh, Inspector Chief Garon. He said this modest one had the trait of a genius. So Gouffé's
1: family could afford to pay this guy for being smart enough to mark the grave, but they themselves would not pay to have the grave. Separated and what? Didn't, they didn't know that it was him.
0: Oh, true. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't he was just. This is only now starting Jean to be proven. Jean at yeah. that point. Jean Do. Do. Jean, Jean Do. <laughs> and so, and honestly, I don't know why. Maybe, maybe the guy didn't want to go, but I don't know why Garon didn't hire this dude immediately. Like, poach him. Put, take him back to Paris. His talents are being wasted here. So they do the second autopsy. This is performed by Dr. Alexandre Lacasson. Uh, the end of it is spelled like lasagna, kind of, and I kind don't of. know how to pronounce that, so I'm just, I'm doing the best I can. Now Lacassonnier?
1: Lacassonnier?
0: L'acasson-ier? Lacassonier, But there's no, I'm really attached there's no to my accent, accent so l'acasson-, lacasson.
1: Lacasson. We'll go with that.
0: Sure. I apologize. Can uh, we just call him Detective Lassie? <laughs> He's actually really like, this man, he was the head of forensic medicine at the University of Lyon. That position didn't exist before he came along. They looked at him and they're like, you need to be the head of forensic medicine. We don't have that yet. Let's make this happen. Uh, So he was a pioneer in the field, but this pioneer, of course, like I said, had been on vacation when uh, Jean Deux's body was found. And just the previous year, He was the one who realized that the rifling marks on bullets were unique to the gun they had been fired from. Whoa, that's an important guy. Really important, yeah. Those could be used to match a bullet to the gun that fired it. That is huge. Rifling marks have been a really central part of so many cases. That was a gigantic milestone in forensics. Even today, if you go to the Mob Museum in Las Vegas, they have
1: a forensic experience where you can go through and do certain common forensic studies. Okay. And one of them is checking the rifling. Mm-hmm. So you know, to this day, that is such a significant thing.
0: Okay. So Vegas just got moved up higher on my list. Oh, it's super fun. It was, so.
1: Well, we went and did the the forensic experience and the but one of the people who was running it was like, do you work in a lab? And I didn't have the heart to tell her that I'm just really
0: into podcasts and <laughs> true crime. <laughs> I love it. Did you just say, yeah, a lab? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's, what, uh, that's what podcasts are called. Le was also quite the character. Levingston said, quote, his summer cottage outside of Lyon had a door knocker that was a bronze casting of a female criminal's hand. Which I kind of love. That's very specific. Yes. At his apartment in Lyon, he had a set of plates that bore reproductions of the criminal tattoos that so intrigued him. And he was no slouch at his work. The second autopsy took three days. That is thorough. That is thorough, and that's a long time spent with a very smelly body.
1: Yeah, that would be a very old corpse.
0: Yeah, yeah. This is in November at this point, and it was in August that he was found. And if it's Gouffé, it was in late July when he was killed. So let's find out if it was Gouffé. What does this autopsy tell us? Tells us that the right leg was somewhat shortened. Buffet had a limp? He had a limp. They looked into this and corroborated that with Buffet's leg issue, which they learned was due to a childhood accident when he had some sort of unintended altercation with a pile of apples and hurt his ankle. I don't know what that's all about. Please Uh, be cryptically
1: vague with anything (laughs) that ever
0: needs to describe me. (laughs) She ran into a pile of apples. And that was the last we saw of Barb. Also. The height in the original autopsy had been incorrect. The measurement this time came to 5'8". Yes, Gufé's family had described him as being 5'7", but they found his military records and they said 5'8". So that matches up. There was a missing molar in the jaw they were able to verify with Gouffet's dentist that he had had that very tooth removed. And then Lacassonne uses the tartar and the wear and tear on the teeth in order to estimate the age of this Jeanne Doe. He says the victim was 50. Gouffet, 49! Exactly, 49! So that puts him a lot closer than the original autopsy guess by uh, bumbling Mick fucks it up. Uh, of, uh, 35 to
2: 45. Just call him Bumbling Bernard. Bumbling Bernard. Well, and did you have the bit about the skull? Tell from, me. From Bumbling Bernard. So, he, instead of sawing off the head, you usually use a saw to remove part of the skull and, and take the brain. He smashed it with a hammer.
0: Oh, yeah, there you go. There you go. That's, that's bright. Hey, I need to do something about the skull. I need a tool. Oh, you need the bone saw? No, no, I need the hammer, please.
2: Yeah, so smash the top of the skull off with the hammer, thus eliminating any chance of seeing if there was head trauma because you just smashed the skull to bits with a fucking hammer. What? Why? He also had opened the chest with a chisel and destroyed the sternum, so you couldn't tell if there was a traumatic chest
0: injury. He probably went with strangulation because the neck was the only thing he hadn't destroyed.
2: <laughs> yeah, and then a lot of the bones were out of place. He can't even put the
0: bones back together. No. He's, he's really bad at his job, the bumbling Bernard. He is
1: really, really bad at his job.
0: <laughs> yeah, wow. They... Or he was just having a lot of fun that day. Apparently, he was like, you know what, let's go full Gallagher on this body. <laughs> Nobody's ever going <laughs> put, to know. Put on your ponchos. We're going to go to town. The first three rows may get splashed with blood and gore. They washed the hair, found it to be chestnut brown. Then they analyzed it for any signs of dye, just in case the gentleman in question had dyed his hair. They found no such signs. Levingston describes the big moment. After three days, Lecassonia surveys his small audience and announces, Gentlemen, I herewith present you with Monsieur Gouffet. We did it! We did it! Hooray! They needed to see now if anybody could identify the trunk, because that's their other connection here. So they have craftsmen have another go at it, this time trying to get it as close to its original appearance as possible, and also had them make a replica of it. And so this is starting to get Ero and Gabrielle's names in the paper as possible suspects. As work goes on, because it's slipped out and now people are looking for them. They do this as an exhibition at the morgue with the trunks, with instructions that anyone who recognizes the trunk should contact police. The papers say that in the first few days, like three to four days, 50,000 people streamed through the morgue to see the trunks. I mean, what else are you going to do? Generally, any exhibition put on at the morgue, a lot of the times it would just be corpses, especially of the, uh, you know, Jean and uh, Jane Doe's, would be, hey, everybody come down and look at the bodies and see if it's somebody you know. And a lot of people just went out of morbid curiosity, so they called the morgue the only free theater in Paris. Let's be honest, we would go. I totally uh, would, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'd be there. It also became good business. I'm sure there were other things that were sold, but what we have noted are tiny stuffed chocolate replicas of the trunk as a memento.
1: That is adorable. I know, right? Kind of, yeah. Did it
2: open? Like, I want to know if the lid opened on it. Could you open it and find a marshmallow
1: or something? Because that would be outstanding. That would be so neat. You know, that is an interesting and challenging technique. Not easy to get right to do chocolate hinges.
0: Barb is absolutely going to make us chocolate murder chests.
2: I really want one. Oh, can we make a little like white chocolate skeleton in it? I'm going to put Jello in it. Okay.
0: <laughs> Just because she has so much from that damn white Christmas present, <laughs> which I like my t-shirts and my Chickaletta cage. So, mid January, a letter arrives on Garon's desk. It is twenty pages long, and it is from. Michel Ayrault loves to write the letters. This man just word vomits all over the page.
1: So he finally found somebody he could send a letter to.
0: Yeah, yeah, he knows his name is out there. He's like, oh, well, if they're saying that Gabrielle and I are suspects, then I'll just make sure that they only think she's a suspect. So essentially he does that. He tries to tell a story that basically says, I don't know what she did. She came to London where I was. She bought the trunk. She said she was broke. She went back to Paris. Uh, She came back without the trunk and uh, said uh, she didn't have any money problems anymore. Yeah, and she's
1: four foot eight and clearly capable of hauling a 237 pound
0: trunk. 230 pound, yeah. It's, yeah. Fine. Yeah. it's yeah, fine. It's fine. Yeah, sure. Four foot eight. I'm sure she, she can do that. Of course, Aero does, you know, point to maybe some mysterious man helped her, maybe one of her other lovers, you know. And then Garron gets two more letters. Every two days. Aero's just writing him these long screeds. Calm down. Right? Speaking of hysterical, Ero is absolutely having a fit of hysteria. His uterus is just angry. It's just ping-ponging around in there. All of this is coming out in the press, and Gabrielle becomes a sort of star in the public. Uh, Levingston said she was France's greatest fear a woman on the loose, a dangerous murderess, a threat to the stability of the French family. And precisely for all that, Parisians found her tantalizing. I'm telling you, good writer, good stuff. I liked it. You love a good bad guy. Yeah, really, bad girl too. And so she is back two days after Chief Garon got the first letter from Ayreau. She's back in Paris. She told her lover, Garanger. When she pretty much had to, because she's in Paris, where all they can talk about is the Gouffet case. (laughs) And so she's all over the papers. But of course, she flips it that Aro committed the murder and she was just kind of there. But she doesn't really know a lot about what happened. Geronje insists that she has to go to the police and tell her tale. He's very certain that she's innocent. He also still does not realize that Aro's whole deal had been scamming him. So since Ayro had told him, hey, when you get to Paris, go see my brother-in-law and he'll repay you some of that loan you're giving me. Garanger goes to the brother-in-law and the brother's like, Psh, that dick owes me money. The hell, I'm giving you anything? Yeah. Dude, you got scammed. Figure it out. Or FFIO as we use this. <laughs> FFIO. FFIO. fucking Figure it out naturally they go to the police and she's arrested. Although it's funny because the first time they tried to go to the, the police, the guy at the front desk, he said, you need a letter of introduction to see anybody higher up. And she said, I'm Gabrielle Bompard. And he said, who? I'm literally a suspect in crime. Like the biggest crime everybody's talking about right now. That, so they left and they came back the next day. and That,
2: that paper on your desk? <laughs>
0: That's, that's, that's me. It's my name. I'm fucking OJ. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of the white bronco. I'm here. Cuff me. But you don't have a letter of introduction. <laughs> no no letter, no cuffs, lady. So she is arrested. Now Chief Garon is recovering from a bad bout with the flu and some vision issues, so he doesn't get to arrest her. His right-hand man, Inspector Jolme, gets that pleasure. He
1: seems like a little, just too little too late
0: with some of these things.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like fate's dealing him a little bit of a bad hand. It's coincidence, you know. It just seems like every day he's coming to the office like, wait, what? The he- one day I'm out. Really?
0: I'm sick once. <laughs> yeah. Zut-a-la. So Inspector Jaume arrests Gabrielle, and then he also takes her to the judge's house for questioning, because that's apparently how they did it. Okay. As they're getting out of the carriage, this is a cute little story, uh, a flower girl sees Jean and his lady friend and tries to sell Jean violets to, to please his lady friend. That's a good hustle. And so uh, quickly, this, this is from Levingston, of course, quickly seizing on the peddler's confusion, Gabrielle turned puppy dog eyes on Jean, trapping him between embarrassment and disgust. And he bought her the flowers. Yes. She gave him her best doe eyes. The judge, when he sees her, says, Voila! Voila! Petite Montice! That means, so, the little liar. And of course... Rude, but okay. Yeah, yeah. Her story puts it all on Ero, and this version even, now it removes her completely from the immediate event. She simply went to Ero's place, noticed that the trunk was in a totally different spot than it had been before, and a man with a red mustache helped him take the trunk out.
1: It's pretty smart on her part. You know, the, when, when things are so very he said, she said, and clearly these two people may be the only ones who actually know what happened, it's good to get your word out first.
0: Yeah, all I can think of, though, with the man with a red mustache is the uh, work-outing episode of IT Crowd, where uh, Roy, Roy gets caught using the, the handicap stall. And he tries to say that his wheelchair was stolen. Yeah. He tries to say that his wheelchair was stolen by red red bearded men. That's all I can think of.
1: Watch the IT crowd.
0: That is the best episode. Like I can, that's a cheer up episode that I watch because it's like so hilarious. I will never get over Jen turning around after seeing Roy and then like in the wheelchair and then finding Moss behind the bar. Love that. Love it. So. They don't believe her, but they're like, we'll just keep working on it. In the meantime, we have a couple of administrative things we need to do with her. Like, we need to send her to Alphonse Bertillon, the creator of the, and here in America, I think we would pronounce it Bertillon, which we've talked about on the show before, I think in a tiny, actually, though, the Bertillon system of cataloging criminals via all of their measurements, measured every little thing, you know, like earlobes got in on this action, okay? Okay. Everything, and that was how they did it before fingerprints. Weird, not weird, methodical. Kind of well, he is the second forensic luminary we've had here, but he was also a little bit of a weird dude, too. So, I mean, when you're
1: measuring people's earlobes, well, I mean, maybe he wasn't measuring, but at least noting, he was, he was measuring earlobes. He was yeah. absolutely
0: he, he put the Dewey decimal system to shame, like Barbian. Okay, he had a whole system and he figured all of these things together are what make a person unique because some people had clocked onto the idea of fingerprints but not enough people either believed it or were invested enough in it to actually make it a thing just yet but very soon so but not yet so
2: beat the system don't get caught for 10 years and your ears and your nose are different
1: ha <laughs> <laughs> it's true and if you're a cook um you you get a lot of cuts and burns on your hands So sometimes you can have trouble if you're getting fingerprinted because Mm. the prints you had on file when you were 21 might be drastically different than what they were when you were 28 because you just cut and burn
0: yourself a whole lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The next day, they finally get a story that includes her participation in the murder. Red mustache guy is gone. Au revoir. Au revoir, red mustache guy. Uh... Rosé Moustacheron, oh, something. but Moustacherous. I, I, t- I, t- instead, Michel Ayron had lost his job for embezzlement, was low on funds. Okay, yes, all this is true. He decided that Gouffet was a good target to help him out with this, essentially, because he, was, he had this well-known propensity for the ladies. And what do you know? You've got a lady right here that we're pretty sure Gouffet likes, and her name is Gabrielle. She's adamant that she had no free will whatsoever. And at first, when he was talking about this plan, it didn't seem so bad. It seemed like it was just going to be a standard robbery. They'll take the money. Nobody gets hurt. And then April started talking about killing Gouffet to eliminate the only witness. They set it up, as we said. This is the acquaintance and the acquaintance's lover, as I'm sure you've clocked on to. Gouffet would think that Ero and Gabrielle had broken up. Gabrielle would set up a rendezvous with him at an apartment they rented under a fake name so as to obscure the trail. Gouffet shows up. They're both at the apartment. Ero is hiding behind a curtain in front of an alcove, all right? Behind the curtain, along with Ero, is a pulley system with a rope attached. The only place left to sit in the entire apartment is a chaise lounge in front of the curtain with the back of it really like butting right up against the curtain. Gabrielle gets a row to sit there. She got on his lap and started sort of teasing him. She was wearing a dressing gown with a red sash, and she pulled the sash off, and there was nothing underneath. So here's Gabrielle, and, you know, here's the the little Gabbies. (laughs) Say hello to my little friends. (laughs) Ooh la la. So while he's got his attention elsewhere, she is, as Aro had taught her, making the sash into a noose. She said to Gouffet, What a nice necktie it makes! She hands through the curtain Aro one end of the sash, he looped it through the rope attached to the pulley, and then she was supposed to put the sash slash noose around Gouffet's neck. In her story, she froze. She couldn't do it. So Ero jumps out, and does it for her. He pulls on the pulley until Gufet is in the air. But this is a 176-pound man. The pulley system doesn't hold. It breaks, and down goes Gufet. He's not dead. Yet. Ero then had to strangle him his bare hands, and then they stuff him into the sack, which Aro had actually had Gabrielle make and just said he needed a really big bag, according to her. And okay. then they stuff him in the trunk. Once the body was in the trunk, Aro sucked down an entire bottle of cognac, then sexually assaulted Gabrielle right there within arm's length of the trunk containing a dead body. Then he went home to his wife. And his bed and left her alone in a dark apartment with a dead body all night. She sort of has what one might think of as inability to display proper emotions at the proper time. Trauma. Trauma, sociopathy, little column A, little column B could be. So about this, she said, to the police to the police." You'd never guess what a funny idea came into my head. You see, it was not very pleasant for me being thus tete-a-tete with a corpse. I couldn't sleep. So I thought what fun it would be to go into the street and pick some respectable gentleman from the provinces. I'd bring him up to the room, and just as he was beginning to enjoy himself, say, Would you like to see a bailiff? Open the trunk suddenly, and before he could recover from his horror, run out into the street and fetch the police. Just think what a fool the respectable gentleman would have looked when the officers came.
1: Okay, I'm maybe not so sympathetic to poor Gabrielle at this point. (laughs)
0: She's making herself less and less sympathetic with every word.
1: That That is hard to imagine that somebody who's being trafficked and forced to do these things, it's hard
0: to believe that they would just be like, hey, you'll be real funny, guys. Like, in some I- In some accounts, it's kind of characterized as a hysterical daydream. Mm. You know, her mind just going to great lengths to try and kind of deal with what's going on, and the trauma like you said, but we don't really know. And this could be just a front. She does love attention, and the wilder your story, the more attention you're gonna get. Fair. So Eirot comes back in the morning to get the trunk in a carriage, and then they take it to the train station. They took the trunk to Lyon, and then outside of town, dumped the body and smashed the trunk actually. Stomped all over it. It's very heavy trunk. <laughs> it's weird. Just like, stomped all over it and just like pushed some of the boards away and they. Maybe trying to look like it had been
1: aged and they're longer than it actually was? Perhaps, something like that, yeah.
0: So, what did they get for all this work? About tree fitty. Ah, actually, uh. about fitty. <laughs> <laughs> about 150 francs and Gouffet's diamond and sapphire pinky ring. All told, this was about $2,000 today. Not very impressive. And he actually just apparently walked right past the 1,400 francs sitting on the table at Gufet's office. They're not very good at this. They're not very good at this. The press is absolutely fascinated with her. They're even publishing her lunches. Okay, so you guys remember? Okay, see, now I am very, very curious. (laughs) I'm reading these. I'm in the bath. I'm kind of hungry. And I start getting hungry for French food. So next thing you know, I'm on this website, Le Panier, that is a US-based distributor of French foods and just ordering so much. <laughs> Those olives are really good though. So uh, after she was interrogated in the morning at the Sûreté, the newspapers published what she had for lunch. I'm going to really apologize in advance for my pronunciation here, but then I will translate it. But I have to say it. Cotelette de mouton avec de la puree de pomme, un morceau de fromage et des brie et une pomme, comme boisson, un vulgar chopin divin. I heard mutton. This was lamb chop okay. with mashed potatoes and a piece of brie cheese and an apple, along with an ordinary glass of wine. Un vulgar chopin divin. Vulgar. She ate with a very good appetite, Le Figaro said that's the newspaper, although complaining that her lamb chop, brought in from a neighboring restaurant, was cold and hardly appetizing. Isolated in her barren cell at the depot, this is straight from uh, Livingston, she managed to cling to some of the finer things in life. She had with her a flask of Eau circassienne, a special water created by a Dr. Wiloff, which was said to preserve a woman's skin tone. Of course, because of all of her behavior, and I think it was possibly legally necessary, they had three doctors examine her to check that she was fit for trial. One factor against her was that according to criminologist Cesar Lombroso from Italy, she'd gone through puberty early, and an early period meant that you would, uh, in adulthood, become a degenerate. Isn't that nice, ladies? Our uteruses can't do anything right. No, they can't. I'm sure if it came later (laughs) than the norm, there was probably something wrong with you too that made you unacceptable. They talked to a family doctor who said that her father had actually requested that he do a little bit of, you know, behavior modification via hypnosis when she was younger. And it didn't work. Interestingly, this very hypnotizable woman, he couldn't hypnotize her. Maybe he was just shite at his job. Maybe, that's possible, yeah. And because of the whole hysterics and hypnosis connection, they had to examine her for that. Here we have, uh... To assess her susceptibility to hypnosis, the doctors tested her under Charcot's guidelines for symptoms of hysteria. So this is what you get. Hyperesthesia, abnormal skin sensitivity on the neck, under the breasts, on the abdomen, above the ovaries, inside the thighs, and on the arms. So if you're hypnotized you're more sensitive in those areas these are no this is the this is signs of that you're you have hysteria oh if you're
1: hysteric you're more sensitive in those areas yes yes so how do they test this do they just like
2: lay her on a table and touch her everywhere i'm it's...
0: you i'm yeah i'm fairly certain that's what was happening that's so disturbing mm, on so many like levels it. yeah yeah notice these these locations um on the neck Yeah, erogenous zones. Under the breasts, on the abdomen, above the ovaries. Inside inside the the thighs. thighs. Yeah. And so they said, okay, let's hypnotize her and see what happens. And they found that it was pretty easy. And then she did all of the typical stuff that one does. Uh, Like, especially, basically, when you were hypnotized, you would then exhibit further symptoms of hysteria during the hypnosis. So her arms and legs went stiff. She succumbed to hallucinations and tried to bat away tormenting visions that rushed in on her. And so they were pretty like, what's up with that? And so the final verdict here was, okay, she has no sense of morality whatsoever. She's a hysteric, but that's fine. All women are. So Uh, there's nothing to keep her from going to court. And very likely she wasn't hypnotized into committing the crime. Because they don't necessarily believe in that school of thought. Meanwhile, Ero had fled to Cuba. But still, his face is all over the papers. There's detectives trying to track him down. There's some of his fellow Frenchmen in Cuba. Incredibly, including a man who used to work for him that he runs into in Havana. (laughs) Of all the coincidences... So it wasn't long before he was caught and he was extradited to France in June, 1890. A thing that just fascinated everybody was this little activity they did where they had a sort of reenactment in the very room where Gouffet had died. They went to the apartment and they set it all up like it had been. And they brought Gabrielle and April to this reenactment to perform it for them. And uh, this was the first time they had seen each other since she left him in San Francisco. Turned into a little bit of a dramatic shit show, as you can imagine. There's some, there's some emotions here.
1: If you asked me to go to the scene of a crime and replay my role in that crime, it'd be like, uh, I was sitting over here sleeping very deeply the whole time. I'm such a
0: sound sleeper. I would, I, I would sleep through a murder.
1: <laughs> yeah. Can't wake the dead. Can't wake me either. Like, why, why would
0: you involve yourself with that and recriminate yourself. Because the thing is, is that she's already told them this story in Mm. which she pauses and is unable to put the noose over the neck, which is the act that began the murder. I would super want immunity at that point. So in her story, I don't know how much they did even immunity. In her story, she didn't actually do anything to commit the murder. That was all a role. And then His story, she put the noose around the neck. Nobody could quite believe that she would have been able to manually strangle a man who was 176 pounds and, and exactly a full foot taller than her. That kind of defied belief, but if they're both complicit, then he can take her down with him. If they both contributed to the murder. So there's going to be a trial, of course, of both of them together. Before the trial can start, there's a little incident. The jury has been picked. And a journalist interviews a bunch of the jurymen, got all of their details on uh, their thoughts about Gabrielle, uh, which he seemed to think they all thought that she was innocent because they had the hots for her. So for his trouble, the journalist got to spend a month in jail. Free press a little less free. I mean, it was still a free press, but there's more rules than we're used to. Now, what's really fun in the trial is how... It's not set up like what we're used to, okay? So in the French court, you do have the judge, but the judge is almost essentially like a prosecutorial assistant, kind of. He is less impartial, and part of his job is in the beginning is essentially to give what might be considered an opening argument. It's a statement of facts about the case. So he'll talk about the defendant's past, their you know, any criminal history, upbringing, and then the actual facts of the case itself that they're focusing on. And the really fun thing is here that the defendant gets to talk back during this, gets to talk back to the judge. Amber, how much would you love that? I would love that a lot. Wouldn't that be fantastic? The judge was laying out a roads past, especially some sketchy stuff that he'd done and some smaller criminal acts. Some examples of things that Eros said during this was, all of this pales next to the crime I'm blamed for. And then also, twice he accuses the judge of slander. <laughs> Imagine if you could get away with that in an American court. No, you would be held in contempt and your ass would be in jail until you apologized. The whole public is really on about this hypnotism idea. And they get testimony from none other than Jules Liegeois. The speaker at that hypnotism conference. And man, could this guy speak. One thing he couldn't do was shut up because he went on for four hours. Wow. Oh, that was not questioning. That was a monologue. You were allowed to do that for some reason. And he was not really noted for any sort of skill in the area of public speaking. So pretty much everybody was probably like, I'm getting very sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting even sleepier. Is that really what he did? It was you just put
1: everybody in a a listening coma. Yeah, basically, probably. Yeah. All those hysterics. He's like, they're hypnotized. And they're like, no, you're just way boring. I mean, after four hours of hearing somebody ramble, if you were like, you get to get up and stand up like a chicken now, I'd be like, hell yeah, I'm for it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's
0: fair. And he's sort of standing where you're not talking. I'm for it. The public seems to be really into this idea of the hypnotism thing. Inspector Jome, that kind of second-in-command to Garon, he is not a fan, especially the part where it pretty much absolves Gabrielle entirely, and he also really does not like how the, much the public seems to be accepting it. He said in his journal, for them, one should not publish Gabrielle any more than one should punish the dagger of a murderer. Do these philanthropists who deplore the horrors of war lock up cannons, bayonets, and bullets in prison? He's basically saying she was just a a tool in the public's eye, but she's in his eye, she's not. They basically go into Eirot's side while Gabrielle is waiting outside, and he puts it all on her. This was all her idea. She came up with the idea for the pulley. She came up with the idea for who the victim would be. She wouldn't shut up about it even when I hit her. I mean, you can understand how infuriating that is, right? I mean, women... You can't live with them. Can't hit them to make them shut up. <laughs> I hate this guy. I yeah. know he's very hateable. Yeah, there's a word in uh, German, and I'm gonna mispronounce it because I've never actually heard it pronounced. I've only seen it in print. "Befehngeheit," and it's a face that needs to be slapped. I just think he's an entire presence, an entire just just yes, the, the meme of you know man disposal, Yes. Throw the whole man away. The whole man. The whole man, please. Get him gone. The judge here seems really determined to get the sexy, sexy details of what happened when Gouffet came over to the apartment. Barb. Yes. Would you like to perform an old-timey, crimey table reading? Sure. Okay, so how are you being lascivious and sounding kind of pervy? Let me, let me take that one, off. I'll take that one. Okay, so I'll be Jay, I'll be the judge.
1: <laughs> I was going to say, I'll leave that up to the table to decide how I am <laughs> It's sounding
0: pervy. I mean, just the fact that I've already read it, so I'm familiar with the material. I'll take the pervy, and you take E, which is Aro. So okay. I'm, I'm Jay. So okay. I was just going to
2: ask you to channel
0: me. <laughs> yeah, right. So I'm the judge, and Barb is Aro being sort of cross-examined by the judge. Did Gufay sit on her lap? Yes. He kissed her. And he fondled her, more or less. And then the crowd actually starts giggling, and he admonishes <laughs> them about how the gravity of this case. And then he continues the questioning. He fondled her. Yes. He kissed her on the face. And then? No, just on the face. He at least began to open her dressing gown. Yes. This man is trying to get something for his Spank Bank. Yeah. He's getting Spank Bank material out of this. Was she
1: wearing a red
0: teddy?
2: <laughs> Where else did he kiss? Yes. Did he go lower? <laughs> and
0: then? And then? No, and then! <laughs> and then, and then, and then! Was she a naughty girl?
1: Yes, she I'll mix- murder a guy. <laughs> we are mixing several early 2000s movies references right now. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, it happens. We're, we're, we're just very referential
1: and tired. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I told you guys, I warned you. It's like this one's going to go on for a while. So, Gabrielle is brought in to do basically the same routine, and it's not, not really considered in her favor that she doesn't speak up when the judge gives her history and involvement, even sometimes she stays silent when asked direct questions. And this is kind of looked on as, oh, well, are you trying to hide something? You know, if you speak up, if you even contradict the judge, that's looked on more favorably than just keeping your mouth shut. So this all goes on. Trial lasts about four days and then the jury goes to deliberate. How many hours, Barb? 37! Minus 35! Two! Thank you. Two hours. Now, they came back with verdicts for each of them. Aro got a guilty verdict, just straight through, which means he's facing the guillotine. I was hoping you'd ask me how many years I thought he
1: would be in jail.
0: (laughs) Well, hang on, I'll give you another one. So Gabrielle got a guilty verdict, but with extenuating circumstances. So she was sentenced to how many years of penal servitude? Twelve and a half. half. <laughs> <laughs> Twenty. <laughs> but! Just wait. Wait. Give it, it'll, it'll come back. Very soon. Abreu <laughs> appealed, but it was rejected, and on February 3rd, 1892, all was made ready for the execution. He was offered the traditional glass of cognac before the procession. And he said, no, that will do me no good. No, take the drink. Yeah, man, give me the whole bottle. This is your last damn chance. Didn't he take a whole bottle before like-
1: After killing the dude. And then before raping Gabrielle. Yeah, man, I'd be like bottoms up, man, right? (laughs) I don't want to walk to the gallows, stone cold sober.
0: Yeah. So he does go to the, well, not the gallows, but the, the blade. His last words were actually railing against the French minister of the interior. You know, if you have a bone to pick, you might as well get it out. Yeah, Yeah, that's your last chance. Exactly, I guess. This guy was an opponent of Aro's favorite politician. Doesn't have anything to do with the case, but uh, his name was Constance. Honestly, that is one name I definitely can't pronounce in French, so I'm just going with, I'm going fanatic. (laughs) So he yells, Constance has won his case. Now his prize. He will be with Gabrielle tonight. There's also a tradition of, uh, just before the procession to the guillotine, after the priest has performed a prayer over you, uh, the priest gives you a kiss, and then you give him a kiss back. There... there have been times throughout society, especially in European cultures, when kissing has actually been the accepted form of greeting. For men, women, whatever, and we we know, of course, the French. You know, they do the the beast, the the kiss on either side, which I messed up the first time I got a chance to do it. Oh, I didn't know you're not actually supposed to touch your lips to their cheek. It just feels natural if you're going in. No, you're just supposed to do kind of like the cheek touch. Yeah, and I felt like an ass afterwards. She was it's like face hugging. She was very nice to me. It was like the proprietor of the hotel we were staying at. She was a wonderful woman, so she didn't be like, "Wow, you weirdo." <laughs> but I was glad it was our last day, and we were on our way out because I felt like, I mean. It's almost in their culture, like, I had just walked up to somebody and made out with them randomly. (laughs) (laughs) Like You licked my ear. I am awkward and weird, especially in other
2: countries. I I would have done it too, so it's good to know that you just touch cheeks and make the kissy noise.
0: Yeah, yep. Somehow in other countries, my awkwardness just goes up a couple of levels. It's hilarious. Why do you think I don't go to other countries? (laughs) (laughs) So, Mero does not go for this tradition when it's kind of a sign of disrespect that he moves his head when the, the priest goes in for the kiss and then oh. he doesn't return the kiss. So he's kind don't, of like, you know, middle finger. Don't diss the priest, man. He's just doing his job. Really, right? And so then they get to the square where the guillotine is. He's still raving about Minister Constance. And the execution is set to be performed by Louis Dibler. We talked about him in episode 107, which was the one I was thinking of when I was actually trying to think of when Amber and I started doing the podcast ourselves. And Ero was going so wild, raving about Interior Minister Constance that Diabler just had to cut off his final words.
2: Uh, uh, uh. Oh, I see what you did there. (laughs) Along with his head.
0: (laughs) um, (laughs) That's the sound his head made when it fell into the basket. (laughs) So anyhow... Well wow. I'm, I'm still on the he's, the priest thing. We hate him, so it's okay, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm,
1: like, I don't know. If I had to go die, I'd probably want, like, a, a nice
0: little kiss before little, I went A little comfort, yeah. Just on the cheek, just a little... It feels like he's being, like, kind of, I don't know, <laughs> martyring himself or masochistic in this little way. Yeah. And that he won't take... The any. cognac or, yeah. or the kiss from the priest. <laughs> no cognac, no kiss. How many years of her sentence did Gabrielle spend in jail? 37. No, you had it before. 12 and a half. 12. Okay. Yeah. Pretty much. She was out in 1903. She was saved eight years of her sentence. She went on a sort of press tour trying to get the spotlight back. She visited her old pal, Liegeois, and said, he said, you have to let me hypnotize you so you can act out the crime again and we can get to the truth of it. He had wanted to do this in the courtroom, but that's sorted. naturally was not allowed. And of course, she did this whole thing with great dramatics and made sure that she implicated a role. They actually tried to take this on, on tour, this little act of the hypnotism and mur- acting out the murder. But then they had a fight, the friendship ended, and it turned out no one really wanted to see her anyhow. Everybody was kind of done with her.
1: Yeah, I mean, once the, the glow of I was mesmerized to kill somebody has worn off, the, I mean, it's really your one trick. It yeah. Really, yeah,
2: well, and at this point, like, what, 12, 13 years have passed, and in booby time, I mean, that's that's a long time. And I'm just thinking this because of the dressing robe, and I imagine <laughs> there are boobies in the show. Yeah. Um, so things are not as... as
1: Perky. Perky. tantalizing
2: <laughs> titillating <laughs> and so like the first like group came in and they're like mm, uh, uh. <laughs> those are um pointing down <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not what we came here for don't bother don't waste your money don't this it's fine
0: yeah let's see she was 21 when she went to jail so she's a full 33. <laughs> I mean, this is almost literally the plot of Chicago in that context
1: where, you know, she was this put upon, I I killed because I had to, and then gets out of prison, and then tries to make money off of it, and nobody gives a shit. Because it was um, 12 years ago. Yeah.
0: This is all we do is reference Chicago and clerks. <laughs> and... um no, that's it,
1: yeah.
2: No, we've had a, we've had a few others. <laughs>
1: Jude, where's my car? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And
0: so. then... And then... So she died in 1920, was pretty much just forgotten up until that point, although it was said that she did a, a mean embroidery, so... Oh, good, she had some skill. She had some skill, which, you know, and also embroidery can be very relaxing, I can tell you from experience. All right, the aftermath of this, as far as hypnotism is concerned. Over some time, its main proponents died, and with them went the idea of hysteria, and hysteria being the main, you know, factor in hypnotism, according to some people. People started to accept that maybe the women who'd been hypnotized, these alleged hysterics, had been faking it. And some of the women admitted it.
1: What? No. No No way. The idea of of a woman being cranky because her uterus is acting up, making her more susceptible to hypnotism, is just several layers of bullshit.
0: It is. Yes, it's several, several layers. And this is really (laughs) hysterical. (laughs) Um, That the women would even make this into a sort of a game. They would see who could be the best hysteric and be just super hypnotizable and really put on a show for the doctors. So this was a woman who was treated as a hysteric and then would later go on to dance at Moulin Rouge and become, become quite well known for it. She was also hypnotized in this manner, hypnotized, and she said, in my tiny brain, I was astonished every time to see how such eminent savants could be duped when I, as insignificant as I was, saw through the farces. And I want to end the tale on the note that it's funny how the hypnotism thing never really works out in the favor of women. Either they're hypnotizing men to do their bidding, as we've seen in previous cases, like the case of uh, Betsy Bigley that we talked about last week, or they're just so wacky and messed up with their hysteria and their crazy wandering uteruses that are really funny They're so easy, they can just moldable men can mold them into this state of hypnosis where they'll do anything, including kill. We never really win. No. We're always either uh, basically evil or stupid. We can't win. So, or hysterical. Or all three. Why not? I
2: choose evil. I choose evil (laughs) on a daily basis. Yes.
0: So, uh, do you have anything else, Amber? Amber? Um, I, I do
2: have one little tidbit for you. So uh, as, as for a little follow-up on Dr. Lock how do you say his name? L'Ejoie? Lasagna? Le, La Cassagne? La Cassagne, yeah. Dr. So I'm not French at all. So because of, of this investigation and the things that he did here, uh, his week-long autopsy actually is now standard practice in forensic exams because of all, all of the things he did. So he, his legend lives on in many, many ways, not just the bullets, but now autopsies.
0: Yeah, he went into great, uh, great detail as far as everything that he looked at. He wasn't just, you know, like bringing a hammer in and seeing how far he could get chips of skull to fly across the room. I bet I can make the wastebasket on the other side, guys. Who's got 10 francs? I bet you 10 francs. But he actually proved himself wrong because one of his
2: favorite sayings in teaching was, a bungled autopsy cannot be redone. This and, is the mm. very
0: rare case. Though. And so he actually proved himself wrong on that. It's, I think it's impressive that he went as hardcore as he did with that being a guiding light of his teaching, that you can't redo a bungled autopsy, because he was probably like, there's no way I can do this. Well, I'll spend three days on it, and I'll do every single little tiny detail. I'll do the best I can, even though I may not in my heart believe that it's possible. So I think that's pretty cool. All right, so recipes. Um, I did find, okay, I did find a recipe when I looked for French recipes. It's by a Monsieur Gouffet from 1895. was an actual uh chef but it's not as fun it's just basically a sole a la normand and it's a fish and white wine and mushrooms and stuff and it's it's just it's i mean it, it, it that sounds very french if you like fish it would probably be really good so instead in 1895 when i looked up french recipe another thing i found was first of all this is another question column where people can write in with questions about various things. So there's a beauty section here. The writer writes in, I like to look very pale. What have I got to take? I do not like powder. And the reply is, eat slate pencils, chalk, clay, and arsenic wafers, and you will be pale enough before the full killer comes round to you. To turn your blonde hair white, try Javel water and repent it the rest of your life. Don't know what that means. And so then they have the recipe for preventing wrinkles. So, ladies, get your pens ready. I'm gonna tell you how you can prevent wrinkles. I would use chalk, but I apparently just eat it. <laughs> Along with your arsenic wafers. Just put the chalk on the wafer. Yum.
1: It's like a little sandwich.
0: You guys should probably never eat any charcuterie boards that I prepare. <laughs> just just warning. If you. you try to serve
2: us arsenic wafers. And
0: chalk. And chalk, we're gonna Better have, have cheese
1: and chocolate.
0: <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Just put some cheese and chocolate on that shit and you'll eat it right How out. do you
1: prevent
2: wrinkles? <laughs> eat arsenic yeah. and you'll never grow old. Yeah, exactly. It won't matter.
0: You won't get old enough It'll to wrinkle. you the most beautiful white. Yeah. In your coffin. So uh, boil the whites of four eggs in half a pint of rose water. Add half an ounce powdered alum and the same of sweet almond oil, beating all to a paste. Uh, To soften the skin using it, try cacao butter. Uh, To darken gray hair, burn peach stones to charcoal. Powder fine with two parts of bruised gall nuts and boil in white wine. And then there's another way using vinegar and the gall nuts and iron filings. Why are we doing this? Why are we putting iron filings in our hair? Use either liquid by dipping a comb in it and combing the hair till quite wet, sitting in the sun, bareheaded, half an hour after. And so it's like sun in but reverse. Exactly. Yes, and there's also uh, a note that champagne will sometimes bleach the hair. So if you really have money, that's how you color your if hair. If
2: I had that much money, I would just have a hot tub full of champagne.
0: Yeah. So extra uh, bubbles. I also like how it's uh, <laughs> the French recipe for preventing wrinkles is harmless. You just in the paragraph above, you were telling people to eat arsenic and chalk and slate. And clay. And put iron in your hair. And I definitely trust you that this is harmless. Definitely. For sure. 100%. This all seems very close to homeopathy. Well,
1: yeah. You want your hair to be dark. Sort of all the time. Use a dark colored metal like iron. So, all right. Well,
0: or charred peach pits with some sort of ground nuts. (laughs) Yeah, basically. As we close in on the two and a half hour mark. I'm just going to race through Patreon. Link in the show notes, five bucks, gets you five bonus episodes a month. Uh, I did old-timey, tiny newspapers this week, and it was hilarious. We had a naked nymph running around, and men who were no longer allowed to measure bathing suits, and a 15-year-old who escaped from uh, a juvenile prison in a nightshirt, and a spaceman invading. All kinds of fun stuff. It was really... uh, Did you guys enjoy it? I did. Don't want to miss that. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So... Uh, You can go check that out over on uh, Patreon.com, socialtummycrimey. Links for merch, our Amazon wishlist, all that stuff is in the show notes. You can uh, rate and review us, Spotify, Audible, iTunes, somehow on Stitcher, maybe individual episodes, I'm not sure. All that jazz. And if I have more bullshit, my hips no longer have the ability to sit in this chair and deliver it. So uh, I actually know what we're doing this week, ladies. Hot tub. <laughs> Girls' night. Girls' night. Oh
2: shit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, we are. So I believe Friday. We're all gonna sprawl out on my giant couch and and cuddle up like kittens. It's gonna be adorable. I completely fucking forgot about it. Not in real life. Well, I mean, whatever day is work works for you guys, but um, I I was not thinking past Monday. That is as far as I can think ahead right now. I can't blame you. I can't blame you. We'll uh, we'll we'll set we'll set the actual time and everything. But yeah, I'm very excited. Gonna have you ladies over, and we're gonna hang out on the couch and eat cheese and chocolate, and um, not arsenic. I, um, I would like your commitment on that here. Yes, I am committed to feeding you arsenic. Fuck. Mm-hmm. We'll bring our own. Yeah, <laughs> bring your own arsenic. Okay, B Y O A. So uh, that has been our ass numbing episode. And uh, don't hypnotize anybody into killing you or expect that that will actually be a valid defense, is our advice to you this week, as far as, uh, you know, murder and stuff is concerned. So we will see you next week with another fabulous episode. And bye. Bye. Peace. (laughs) Sources. Sources. Actually, I only have three sources this week. Little Demon in the City of Light: A True Story of Murder in Bellepoc, Paris, by Steve Livingston. Again, that was very like a debt of gratitude to that man for writing such a great book, and it was a wonderful, wonderful source. So many amazing details. Executed Today by Harry Broadrib Irving. Uh, Blood, Bullets, and Bones: The Story of Forensic Science from Sherlock Holmes to DNA by Bridget Hales, whose name almost got written Hose, so bullet-dodged.
2: <laughs> uh, I also have three sources. I've got Wikipedia, thelineup.com by Oren Gray, and gizmodo.com by Douglas Starr. Nice. Alright. Okay. I was going to find an excuse to pause so you could open that,
1: but that I got caught up in the story.
2: I knew eventually. Well, that's good.
1: We like that. Yeah,
2: <laughs> eventually I was going to have my moment.
0: <laughs> you knew it would come. At some point I would drop something or fuck something up. <laughs> I thought you were just going to stop with fuck something. I was like, <laughs>
2: yeah. No, that's me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cheese. But so. I, w- I would fuck a good cheese. <laughs> hard cheese, though. Must, yeah, it's it be hard has cheese. to be hard cheese, oh. not the crumbly kind. Oh my god. <laughs>
0: Every time we, we... all <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: entirely
0: too much thought about fucking cheese, ma'am.
1: I mean,
2: sometimes you just gotta think about things. She no. thinks
0: about a lot of things. Um, yeah, she thinks about a lot of things.
2: My Google search history is either related to food or
1: sex, or both.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay.